Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. David Joseph Carpenter is one of the oldest people on death row in the United States. And while most in prison either know him by his inmate number of C96500 or just as Dave or David, the outside world still knows him best by his dark moniker of the Trailside Killer. From 1979 to 1981, numerous hikers in various wilderness areas around the Bay Area and California were targeted by an unknown serial killer. In almost every case, the victims had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber gun. Many of the female victims had been raped, and two victims were stabbed to death. Some fellow hikers saw the killer, an elusive, nondescript man with dark hair and glasses. One victim survived being shot in the neck by the trailside killer, but it would still be another year before he was apprehended. Carpenter is an unusual serial killer. He didn't target sex workers, or hitchhikers, or runaways, or anyone marginalized and living on the fringes of society. He targeted friends, acquaintances or strangers just enjoying the beauty of nature. He also didn't seem to really enjoy the act of killing. He didn't appear to enjoy prolonging the torture or deaths of his victims. He did very much enjoy the act of rape. Primarily sexually motivated, he attacked and fled quickly. Once he got what he wanted, or once he fired some shots and worried about the attention that would attract, he was gone. And that made him harder to capture. He didn't linger with his victims. He didn't return to the kill sites to relive and savor the trauma he inflicted in some way. He also was able to kill for as long as he did thanks to a pre-internet system of law enforcement record keeping that kept him off the legal radar. Carpenter was finally arrested in May of 1991, shortly after another one of his female associates disappeared. Although David asked her not to, she told her boyfriend and mother that, she, that she was supposed to meet him to purchase a car. And that finally put his name on police radar. At the time of his arrest, David Carpenter was suspected of at least 10 murders. Then, as authorities dug in further, investigators soon learned that his violent sexual crimes started much earlier than the trailside killings. He had a history of attacking women and children that went back to his childhood. Similar to UK serial killer Dennis Nielsen a few weeks ago, 
David claimed that he did a lot of what he did because of the abuse he suffered in childhood. But like with Dennis, was he really abused or was something very, very wrong with him right from the start? He also would blame the system for never rehabilitating him during his many incarcerated stints prior to his final arrest. But would it even been possible to rehabilitate this guy? This week, I'll lay out the key moments of David Carpenter's early life, his lengthy history of violence, the trailside killings, and how David became the oldest inmate currently on California's death row in another true crime, serial killing. It's a bummer. This monster is still alive. Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, former library pool boy kind of guy, guy who still thinks it's so weird to fake pass out in front of somebody, hoping that they will molest you, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, Thank you so much for continuing to watch my new special, Trying to Get Better, on YouTube now. Uh, Thank you so much for all the views, likes, comments, subscribes, and shares. It has helped continue to push it out to new people. Uh, Recording this last Wednesday, September 6th, and closing in on 300,000 views. That is huge for somebody uh, in the first 10 days who has not gone on major publicity podcasts like uh, Joe Rogan Experience or this past weekend with Theo Vaughn, Two Bad Friends, Your Mom's House, etc. Living in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho has been great for limiting distractions when it comes to prep-heavy storytelling podcasts. Not as great when it comes to comedy networking. So thank you. Uh, Also, the comment section underneath the special uh, is becoming incredibly entertaining. So many you diminish knowledge with your statement comments and comments referencing me uh, possibly burning down the Library of Alexandria and keeping humanity from attaining fireball wizard powers and shit. Uh, At Responsible Dave wrote one of these. He wrote, uh, please, everyone, do not let this distract you from the secret knowledge that if not for the burning of the Library of Alexandria, we could be shooting fireballs and teleporting. I think it very. I think it is very suspicious. Dan never mentions this in his act. Maybe he is part of the shadow secret wizard government keeping the knowledge hidden. I fucking love wondering what people reading that must think. Like, why are there so many Library of Alexandria comments underneath this comedy special that never references the library? <laughs> so keep it coming. Let's make it the most confusing comment section uh, on YouTube. And also come see me do a different set on, on tour of uh, newer material. Hoping I had fun in Richmond, Virginia this past week. Uh, Looking forward to Burlington, Vermont, Chicago, Buffalo, New York, Providence, Rhode Island, and more. All dates up at dancummins.tv. Quick merch announcement. Bringing back some old favorites. We've had some killer teas come and go. Uh, A few deserve another life. And we have some of those up at badmagicmerch.com right now. Like the Do You Even Cult Bro? Want to join my cult Woody T? And so much more. Uh, One more thing. Charity. This month. We are headed to camp, and with that, we worked hand-in-hand with the host camp, Camp No Counselors, to seek a worthy camp-related nonprofit. We landed on Maury's Camp, also known as Project Maury. Project Maury was born out of summer camp, pioneer Maury Stein's dream that all children, regardless of economic status, should experience the life-changing gift of summer camp. Beginning as a summer camp experience, Project Maury has grown into a comprehensive year-round youth development organization. And with this nonprofit, the support for underserved children doesn't stop at summer camp. Project Mori is committed to working to ensure young people from under-resourced communities graduate high school, ready for college, careers, and life. 
the bartenders at Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp also joining us by committing to donating 100% of their tips to Project Mori. So that is uh, kudos to them. So cool. As, uh, you know, the the total for the month will be announced later when we can uh, factor some of that in. Uh, To learn more, please visit projectmori.org. And now we have some hiking to do. Metaphorically, a big episode to hike through. Do you like to go hiking? I do. Uh, The whole family does. My son, Kyler, loves it. Uh, So does my wife, Lindsay. My daughter, Monroe, likes it. She likes it a lot more than she used to when she uh, literally uh, would complain that trails didn't have enough beds or any beds. She wanted beds alongside the trails where you could lay down and take a nap when you got too tired. I thought that was so funny when she was little. Uh, Lindsay and I have taken the kids hiking or gone hiking ourselves down around Los Angeles and places like uh, Temescal Canyon or around Will Rogers, Will Rogers State Park. We've hiked all over Kootenai County, Idaho, uh, hiked a bunch around where I grew up in Riggins, Idaho and Idaho County in different areas in and around the Spokane Valley. It's a nice little trail of a few miles. It starts less than a half mile from our house. Uh, we've gone on vacations that are centered around hiking places like Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, or Iceland. Hiking's awesome for us. And I imagine for most people, it's a place to yeah get a little exercise, but mostly to escape the hustle and bustle of life, get some peace and tranquility to disconnect a place to get away from computers and work and, you know, being on your phone all the time and checking socials to just taking in the simple and free pleasure of the beauty of nature. I can picture myself in so many different areas. I've been taking a break along some trail at an especially beautiful Vista point, sitting down, just enjoying the awe-inspiring ancient beauty of some big valley below, maybe a river down in the bottom, carving deeper and deeper as it has uh, been doing for millions of years. Maybe I'm looking across the canyon at some, you know, distant plateau or mountain range, just admiring the thick pines around me or a pristine alpine lake or even some desert scene full of cactus, sandy soil and sagebrush, like something out of an old Western. However uh, different the view is that I'm imagining, the feeling I have while experiencing it is always the same, right? Inner peace, calm, tranquility. Now imagine some stranger coming along the trail. Right, Someone dressed just like some other person out also enjoying some nature. Happens all the time on a nice trail that's popular. But this stranger, instead of just giving you a little wave and a smile and moving along, instead of just tossing out maybe, uh, that's some view, huh? Or the equivalent. Imagine them stopping and just staring at you in some creepy, intense way. And then they pull out a gun. And then, you know, they just casually tell you something horrible like, I'm going to rape you. Just stay quiet and you won't get killed. All that tranquility shattered. In an instant, as you process what the man has just said, a man with cold eyes, an overall vibe of just being very, very unwell. And now you remember that it's been a long time since you've seen any other hiker around. Just you and this guy. And then he does rape you. But when he's done, he does not let you go. He still has the gun pointed at you. He's telling you uh, how he still has to kill you now. You've seen his face. You'll go to the police. You're down on your knees, literally begging for your life. And he's staring down at you and smiling. He got what he wanted. And now you're going to die anyway. What a crazy sequence of final moments from enjoying the beauty of nature one minute to being raped by a fucking madman the next to being coldly executed. This is what the trailside killer did to victim after victim. Central coastal California has miles and miles of beautiful scenic hiking trails frequented by thousands and thousands of people. But from 1979 to 1981, the crowds of hikers seemingly vanished in a lot of places around central coastal California. The trailside killer, as he was called by the press, had been targeting female hikers and sometimes their male partners 
turning a favorite pastime of many into a very dangerous activity. The killer stayed in one general area, but didn't stick to one location. He moved from Mount Tamalpais in the Bay Area to the Point Reyes National Seashore Park in Marin County, 20 miles below, to the wilderness outside of the city of Santa Cruz, some 100 miles north. It seemed like no one in the uh, general Bay Area vicinity was safe. Robert Graysmith, author of The Sleeping Lady, The Trailside Murders Above the Golden Gate, wrote in his book published in 1990 about David Carpenter, In the summer of 1979, the tranquility of the mountain's green and blue slopes was shattered when the first recorded homicide on Mount Tamalpais occurred. Soon afterwards, serial killings and rapes on the parkland trails began. A handsome, dark-haired man with a hawk-like profile was glimpsed stabbing a woman hiker to death. This young man, later dubbed the trailside killer, vanished as completely as if he had never been. As the search for this unknown man continued, the residents of the idyllic communities that ring the mountain and the sprawling nine counties, 90 cities and towns of the Bay Area, became fearful. The killer's unpredictable crimes swept the hikers from the winding tra- winding trails and isolated canyons of Mount Tamalpais. One identified uh, person was quoted as saying, The area is so beautiful, and now it has fallen under the rule of a madman. Author Gray Smith was all too familiar with the effect of these and other killings on the area, He lived near David's killing grounds and had worked as the political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle when the Zodiac Killer was sending letters and cryptograms to the paper a decade earlier back in the late 1960s. Robert would spend four years writing, researching, and conducting interviews for his book about David Carpenter, speaking with detectives, lawyers, and survivors. Spent a decent amount of time hiking the trails where Carpenter killed as well, familiarizing himself with that psycho's former hunting ground an especially beautiful hunting ground, normally a place that felt so safe. Mount Tamalpais is a scenic mountain known as the Sleeping Lady. It overlooks San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and has arguably the best views of anywhere in the Bay Area. But its beautiful vistas were disturbed, of course, by David's crimes. On Mount Tamalpais, sheriff's deputies started to stop drivers and warn them about hiking in that location. Deputies also organized mounted patrols of the trails. But as mentioned earlier, it wasn't just Mount Tamalpais where women were being killed on the hiking trails. For 21 months, Marin County was also being terrorized by a serial killer. Some once crowded area parks were now empty. Orange signs were put up that said, warning for hikers. Because of the tragic discovery of four bodies in the park on November 28, 1980, please do not hike alone. Everyone should hike slash camp with at least one other person and they should stay together as much as possible. Women should be especially cautious and under no circumstances travel alone. Imagine seeing that as you start your hike. Especially if you're hiking on like December 15th or something, or even the following spring. Do you head back to the car? Or do you think, oh my God, that's terrible. But you know, now the police are looking and he's probably gone. He won't kill me and just go hiking anyway. Okay, no need to lay out any additional context today. Let's just meet this dirtbag, starting with his birth, continuing through his life crimes, many arrests, too many fucking arrests, and eventual permanent incarceration that should have happened so much earlier than it did in today's timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. David Joseph Carpenter uh, was born on May 6, 1930 in San Francisco, California, a city we have been to so many times before here on Time Suck. His parents were Elwood and Francis Carpenter. 
Elwood worked as a postal delivery driver and Frances was a stay-at-home mom. Frances Elizabeth Hart and Elwood Ashley Carpenter had married not quite a year before, on August 6, 1929. He was 29, she was 22. Elwood had been married once before, had a son named William Elwood, who lived in Idaho with his mother. Billy Elwood. That sounds like somebody from Idaho. Sounds like some kid I could have went to school with. Uh, David was his father's middle child. His younger sister, Anne, was born in 1934. After Anne's birth, the family moved from whatever address they were living in, not mentioned in sources, to a house on Sussex Street in San Francisco, where David would grow up. And where David would not have a happy childhood. David was abused growing up for sure. But were his parents his abusers? Or were his peers? Or possibly both? Sources are very conflicted in this regard. Some sources say that he was beaten repeatedly and severely by his mother. But don't list out who said that. Testimony regarding his childhood abuse came out largely as part of his defense team strategy to have him spared from the death penalty at the penalty phase of his murder trial. Other people who knew him growing up, who were interviewed by newspaper reporters uh, or for a book about him, you know, outside of the trial, don't necessarily support the testimony of witnesses at his trial. His two siblings did not testify, for example, that he was abused, you know, throughout his childhood. And that does leave me wondering. Did his parents actually abuse him or did a few people say that they did, you know, to, to keep him from being sent to the electric chair, possibly? Most of the following information comes from a report by a psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Allison, who examined David for a probation report in 1970. If Dr. Allison's name sounds familiar and you're a regular listener, well, good memory. I'll share where we met him later. Uh, in Dr. Allison's report, he notes that one of David's probation officers wrote that his pathological history went back to the age of seven. This is when he first developed a pronounced stutter that would affect with him, uh, stick with him excuse me, the rest of his life. The officer wrote his parents and siblings were not fond of him at all, being somewhat ashamed of his speech impediment. Ah, based on other stuff you're going to learn, that speech impediment might not have been why the rest of the family were not too fond of him. As you will uh, you know, soon see, almost no one was very fond of this kid growing up, and for good reason, because holy fuck was he creepy, and just terrible behavior. Uh, David also suffered from poor vision. Thick glasses did not help with his social life. Also, he was naturally left-handed, but his mother and teachers forced him to use his right hand, which did not help him with writing in class or sports and, you know, pissed him off because it was stupid and unnecessary. And he was not alone there. Uh, a Time article published in 1969 contended that ever since medieval times, stern Catholics had believed that being left-handed was a sign of the devil or witchcraft. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. Burn the Southpaw witch! And in the U.S. and Britain, it was regular practice to retain or retrain, excuse me, lefties as righties until the last few decades of the 20th century. And I have heard of this, you know, before. That, that was like a common thing. Um, some argument about how like the, the world was built for right-handed people. So you should learn to be uh, right-handed, which is really fucking stupid when you dig a little further into it. It's like, or you could just adapt as needed and not make school, sports, and childhood in general just more unnecessarily difficult than it already is. Uh, Dr. Allison wrote, at school, he was always made fun of because of the stammer and inability to get out answers, even though he was brighter than most children in the school. Obviously, that would be frustrating to know the answers, but not be able to get them out because of a stuttering problem and then be made fun of for that stuttering problem, which, you know, adds to your frustration, which probably makes you study more or stutter more. A 1981 article from the San Francisco Examiner also sheds lights, uh, sheds light on David's childhood. Uh, we'll return in a bit to... Uh, more of Dr. Allison's analysis. The article said he was hated by his classmates at Glen Park Elementary School. David earned good grades, but was known as the teacher's pet 
and a classroom snitch. Uh, and that did not endear him to other kids. In fact, other boys in the neighborhood uh, often beat him up. David sometimes retaliated, tried to choke the boys, but was never able to really fight back effectively. David's childhood best friend, Robert Gorbeck, told the paper that David was book smart and always got the best grades, but that he had trouble making friends with other boys. So he played chess with adults and played with girls his age, but the girls also not fond of him because he would uh, break their toys and dolls. And then Gorbeck said that David would get this stupid smile on his face when he did that, uh, as if he were just pranking the girls. Considering what he did later to women, this is really creepy, right? What a fucking weirdo. Like, I remember kids kind of like this from grade school. Kids who would cry about being bullied, uh, you know, beat the whole nobody likes me drum. Also, the first to tell the teacher when somebody did something wrong, you know, against the rules, so they fucking snitch. Uh, also that creepy and weird with girls and shit. It's like, yeah, you're right, weirdo. Nobody fucking likes you. And it's because of how you act all the time, right? There are consequences to actions. Maybe try not being a creepy little rat for a while. See how that affects your life. Yeah, a lot of kids like this, uh, I'm sure could really benefit from better parenting, better communication from parents regarding how their behavior is affecting their social life. Other kids though, I'm not sure parenting would fix their problems, right? Like nurture, nature, Nature is so strong in some people. Just like some people are born with a learning disability that makes it so much harder for them to read or to excel in math or whatever. Just like some kids are not born very athletic or coordinated. They're never going to excel at sports no matter how much coaching they ever get, right? Other kids not born with the ability to excel socially. I don't think so, right? We're all a little weird in some way or another, but some of us are super fucking weird, like a truly upsetting amount of weird like a a social handicap of sorts. And I think David is uh, one of these people. In elementary school, David did shit like pulling the wings off of flies in class to shock the other kids. And it worked. You know, they thought he was a freak. Also a bedwetter into his early teens, which, you know, as a a bedwetter myself, that doesn't uh, boost your social life real well. Former neighbor, Denise Rodriguez, did not say that David was abused, but said that David's family was very quiet, reserved, dignified, and aloof. She said his father was strict and demanding and David could never seem to please him, but that his mother was very kind, you know, at least outsiders. So that's very different than what other people have said. Uh, Interesting to me that this is, uh, you know, there's all these conflicting sources again. You know, most of them uh, say that dad was timid and the mom was strict and dominant. Dave's old buddy Gorbeck also said that David tried to be like five different people. With me, he was himself. Uh, When the old man came around, he would toe the line like a soldier with his mother who liked to hug him a lot. This is his best friend saying this. Uh, He knew he could get away with things. I just figure he's a mixed up person, right? So was his mom really abusive or did she actually coddle him? And this being different people uh, in front of different people, not that uncommon really, just a form of social mirroring. Uh, Gorbeck said that young David was a very well-groomed child, like maybe too much so, which is funny to me. Said his hair was always trimmed and he wore, quote, little Lord Fauntleroy suits. (laughs) His clothing was another reason he was bullied. All right, so maybe mom fucking dressed him, you know, a little too dapper. Uh, Like a little weird Elizabethan character or, uh, you know, for for school. Uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy is a book by Francis Hodgson Burnett that was first published in 1885, then adapted for the stage, later for film. Uh, The character, the title character wears a fancy little black velvet suit with a lacy little collar, like fucking top hat kind of shit. I doubt David was wearing that. Just probably dressed up like, uh, you know, he's going to some fancy British boarding school, but instead he's just going to public school down the street in San Francisco. And that would suck. Uh, reminds me of my mom insisting when I was in grade school that I, that I wear these stupid fucking sweaters 
that my great aunt Fern knitted for me. Uh, holy shit, were they like the ugliest sweaters you've ever seen in your life? Very brightly colored, like weird patterns, uh, horribly fitting, like very poor fitting. And yeah, and just hideous. And I got made fun of big time whenever I wore those. Uh, I'm pretty sure I kept accidentally losing them at school. Uh, Gorbeck uh, recalled that Sussex Street was a friendly neighborhood. When someone was sick, his mom made him a, take a sack of coal to their house. On the way there, neighbors would add food, other donations to his wagon. But he did remember that no one ever brought anything to the carpenter house. That they just weren't, uh, you know, as well liked. He said that Francis Carpenter and David's sister Anne were friendly, but neighbors thought Elwood was standoffish and uppity. Fucking Elwood. Inside the home, Francis Carpenter was allegedly the opposite of friendly, according to author Robert Graysmith. He wrote that David's mother had an unloving, inflexible, and exceedingly domineering stance within the family group. He said that things were so bad that Elwood left home for more than a year when David was 14. Also wrote that a lot of family arguments centered around David's pronounced stutter. Francis didn't want David to get treatment. She once made him uh, an appointment at the UC Medical Center, but she was reportedly so embarrassed that she took him to the door of the clinic and then left. Other times, she would intentionally arrive too late to be seen for the appointment and then blame David for dwaddling. I don't know. I, I question I question where he's getting this. I know he interviewed a lot of people, but like family arguments centered mostly like around David's pronounced stutter. This doesn't seem like a source for like the most family arguments, but I don't know. Uh, Francis also started to forbid David to play with other kids at school because he was getting beat up so often. I mean, that sounds kind of protective. Uh, whenever she did allow a child to come over to play with David, she had a strict time limit and would uh, order the visitor to leave at that time. Uh, David, by the end of grade school, was spending most of his afternoons taking ballet and violin lessons. And he really resented that later in life, especially ballet. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's a fucking, I don't know. I wouldn't want to go to ballet and violin lessons either, but I don't think that's justification for serial killing later. If only, if only mommy wouldn't have sent me to the ballet, I wouldn't have had to kill all those people. Uh, despite keeping him home away from bullies, David may have not, uh, David, excuse me, may have been getting his ass beat at home by the end of grade school. He would supposedly miss school for two or three days at a time, then come back covered in bruises and welts. Even had a black eye in one of his school portraits, according to neighbor Yvonne Carey. She said she did once witness Francis beating David with a belt when he dropped a milk, a milk bottle. Okay, so uh, now that's not, you know, not light, but I will say kids got beat with belts quite a bit back at this time. This is back in the fucking 40s and 50s. This would be the 40s, actually. So uh, it seems excessive, right? But also, how many times did he fucking drop those milk bottles? Was that like the hundredth milk bottle he dropped in the last two months? Or did he drop the milk bottle right after getting caught? Like, I don't know, trying to skin the neighbor's cat alive or something? Right after molesting somebody? That'll make sense in a little bit. Uh, before getting to why I said that again, though, a lot of this came out during his trial for committing numerous rapes and murders as part of a defense team strategy to try and spare him from being given the death penalty. For every witness that said he was terribly abused by his parents, there are others he grew up with, like his best friend, that did not remember him just, you know, constantly being beaten at home. Now regarding the uh, molestation reference, 1944, 14-year-old David gets caught doing some diddling and is committed. So I guess actually some of that stuff would have been like the late 30s even. More common for uh, kids to get whacked around. Uh, 14-year-old David, 1944, caught doing some diddling, committed to the Napa State Hospital for Sex Offenses for an undisclosed amount of time in treatment. Sources don't mention exactly what these sex offenses were. We'll have more details of others going forward. Uh, numerous sources do mention them. And so it begins. David's pattern of either committing sex crimes or being locked up. A pattern that will continue for the rest of his life. After spending some time in an unnamed juvenile detention center, 
David is back in school by the 10th grade, attending Balboa High School. I mean, maybe he was uh, in the Napa State Hospital for sex offenses for the entire time. Maybe a different uh, uh, place there for a little while. But in 10th grade, he's Balboa High School. He will not graduate. During his sophomore year, he will run away from home and hide in a cabin in Redwood Grove that his family owned. And eventually will be expelled for truancy. Also keeps getting arrested. While there are not details for all of his uh, you know, crimes when he was younger, perhaps the record sealed to protect victims' identities or just because he was a juvenile, as a teen, David was arrested five times on sex charges and suspected of many other crimes. Some people living in Boulder Creek, a census-designated place in Santa Cruz County, the place he kept frequenting, actually requested to be notified when David left the Napa State Hospital for exactly this reason. Apparently, he was visiting uh, that place quite a bit and trying to steal shit. Also would spend time in other facilities. Uh, he escaped once from Juvenile Hall, walked away twice from that facility, apparently turned... Uh, into some sort of rape machine around this time as well. He later bragged to prison inmates after another future arrest that he raped girls as a teen and said, by the time I was 18, I'd had intercourse 50 times, sometimes with consent, but most often by force. It's fucking terrifying. Dr. Allison uh, asked David when this started and David told him, I pulled down a little girl's pants for the first time when I was eight years old. That's horrifying. Uh... Clearly something may have happened to him molestation-wise for him to uh, you know, exhibit that behavior, but that's not mentioned in any sources. Uh, Dr. Allison noted in his report that David was skilled at reading people, finding their vulnerabilities, and manipulating them. So he's a monster. Uh, he believed David was acting out the ego of his mother. Or David was just a natural-born piece of shit. And I think David uh, read Dr. Allison and manipulated him. Uh, David's mother allegedly hated women as he did too, or so he did too. Again, according to Allison, David also portrayed himself as a victim of women. Author Graysmith wrote, all of his actions stem from this belief. If blame were placed, it should, it should fall upon the women, the catalyst for his rage. Dr. Allison would later label David as a mentally disordered sex offender. And he wrote that, this is so fucking ridiculous to me. He actually wrote this. He wrote that if David could just get treatment for his stuttering, it might be possible to prevent further catastrophes of this sort. Uh, fucking what? Uh, Dr. Allison sounds like a real Dr. Dipshit. Uh, Dr. Allison also noted in 1970, whenever Carpenter feels hemmed in, his sexual urge climbs. And the only way he can think straight is to make plans and act on them uh, and make plans and act on them is to rape the nearest female. He's a very bright man who has many capabilities and he is not a professional criminal. It would seem worth the state's time and money to try an effective rehabilitation approach for him for a change. This doctor truly was such a fucking idiot. In one part, paragraph, he wrote that the only way this guy can think straight is to rape the nearest female. And also that we need to spend time and money to find an effective rehabilitation approach for such an individual. Uh, how about fuck that shit forever? If somebody's brain is so fucked up that they can only think straight when they're either raping or making plans for raping, they are not worth rehabilitation. Sorry, buddy, but you're just too fucked up. Instead of prescribing, prescribing you some medicine uh, or going about trying to find a course of treatment, we're just going to let you go. Uh, before you leave, just stop and see Johnny to get your things. And then Johnny will just take him to a, a room and blow his brains out. Like, you can't save everybody. I believe that when I started doing true crime podcasts seven years ago. And while I do try to keep an open mind about most things, I believe it more now. Just like once symptoms appear, you still cannot cure a dog of rabies. And the best thing you can do is to put it down. Same is true for people like David Carpenter. You can't fucking rehab somebody who's that rapey. Also, I love how Dr. Allison suggested that if you just if you just fix this guy's stutter, he'd probably stop raping. 
I've never heard of something like that. David used to rape the shit out of any woman near him, but now that we fixed his stutter, he's a big teddy bear. It was never about the sex, never about hating women, never about the power, never about being addicted to feeling uh, uh, that he could just do whatever he wanted to do to some scared woman. No, it was just always about how he talked, if he could just have communicated more effectively. Dr. Allison was an idiot. Uh, We met Dr. Allison in the Hillside Stranglers episode. Uh, Kenneth Bianchi's defense team used him as an expert witness when Ken was claiming he had multiple personalities, which was bullshit. Dr. Allison was used all the time by defense teams as an expert witness in the 70s and 80s because he would just fucking find whatever you wanted him to find. It sure seems like, right? He would find some angle to make the jury possibly think the defendant couldn't possibly be responsible for their actions. Around the time of David's trial, uh, he was super into studying people he thought had multiple personalities. And he was writing a book about one patient who he seemed to believe had a personality who could speak with angels. Like, seriously, I I can't believe any of his testimony was ever allowed anywhere. One of his last books before he passed away, uh, published in 2012, was called Collected Works, Volume 3, Spiritual Psychology. And here is the synopsis. Possession and exorcism, reincarnation, and the nature of the human essence are the subjects of these collected papers on spiritual psychology by Dr. Allison. Most of this information was taught to him by spiritual beings who borrowed the bodies of two of his patients with multiple personality disorder. These spirits called themselves collectively Celestial Intelligent Energy, CIE. Individually, they were named Faith, Hope, and Charity. Their basic message was, each of you humans has an essence. Listen to it. Fucking that guy is who helped lead the charge of David being abused by his parents at David's trial. So, you know, maybe not like the the most credible person. Uh, investigators were curious about David's stutter. Uh, they wanted to figure out why David's stutter seemed to disappear before enduring sexual attacks, something noted by various witnesses throughout his life. Uh, most experts seem to believe that in a high emotional situation, that's when stuttering can and will disappear. And now before moving on to the next date in this timeline, this feels like the least disruptive place for today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? 
Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Hope you heard some appealing deals, used our codes and or landing pages to save some money. Back to 1947 now, when young David exhibits more troubling sexual behavior. In 1947, 17-year-old David was sentenced to a California Youth Authority facility in Preston, about 90 miles north of his home, and charged with the heinous crimes of molesting two cousins, an eight-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. Uh, saw the kids playing in a park in Diamond Heights, took them into a school bathroom, allegedly threatened them with a knife and said, my dog will bite you if you don't do what I say. Fuck man, 17 year old doing that to an eight and three year old. Can you rehabilitate that person? Someone that, uh, you know, while they are still young, also clearly way old enough to be able to distinguish between this kind of, you know, wrong and right. If you don't know how wrong it is to molest a three year old by the time you're 17, 
you're probably permanently fucked. Also, these kids weren't strangers. They were his cousins. So how, how was he uh, uh, thinking that he wouldn't get caught for this? Uh, it reeks of intense and like compulsion to me. Like he'd been seeing these kids. He was attracted to these kids. Building a fantasy in his head. Felt a strong compulsion to do something to them. And then one day, just consequences be damned. Just did what he had been fantasizing about. Speculating, of course. But uh, that makes him even uh, more dangerous, right? Somebody who just can't fucking rein it in. Uh, David would remain in custody until he was 18 and a half. Then paroled in December of 1948. So that's super cool. You know, molest an eight and three-year-old in a park bathroom. And you get locked up for like a year and change. After already having previous, you know, sexual crimes in your, in your, on your record. Less than two years later, August 5th, 1950, David attempted to rape a girl he knew at his house while his parents were away. He was driving the 17-year-old acquaintance to her friend's house. Then asked if they could stop at his house so she could help him clean up the living room before his parents got back. Weird, weird request. But I guess he could have said something about how he left the place, you know, in such a mess after throwing such a fucking cool party because he's such a cool dude. And now he needs to pick things up fast before his lame old parents get home. Once inside, David got uh, rapey and he made unwanted sexual advances and contact towards her. She was luckily able to lock herself in the bathroom, crawl out through the window uh, when he tried to barge in. David was bound on a charge stating that he willfully and feloniously made an assault upon a female under the age of 18 with the intent to have and accomplish the act of sexual intercourse upon said female. Uh, he was unfortunately found not guilty of this attempted rape at his trial on October 10th. And again, when this guy wasn't locked up, he was raping or trying to rape, it seems. For the next five years, we don't know a lot about what David was up to other than he did manage to stay out of prison. We'll see when we make it to his murder trial that he was still being super creepy, but don't have a lot of details. Uh, he did work as a purser for a while, maybe that entire time on some passenger ships. But other than that, we don't know a ton. November 5th, 1955, 25-year-old David Carpenter marries 19-year-old Ellen, proceeds to relentlessly fuck her for years. Uh, Ellen's last name not mentioned in sources. Ellen would later report that David had a, quote, enormous sexual appetite and had to have sex three times every night. Every night? Three times? I mean, I'm all for finding time, especially when you're that young to have some real fuck fests. You know, get after it. Stay in bed all day, you know, just fuck, snack, and sleep. But three times every night feels like a lot. Author Graysmith wrote, Ellen was a model of the 50s wife. She stayed home, she didn't drive, and Carpenter picked out their house for her. So he has her under his thumb. Couple's first son, Michael David, born September 1956. Their daughter, Gabrielle Louise, uh, born July 3rd, 1958. Their third and final child, Cersei Ann, uh, born June 17th, 1960. And when David was not having lots of sex with his wife, he was probably getting away with tons of rapes. Uh, July 12th, 1960, David Carpenter, now 30, makes an assault that he will get caught for. This is horrific. He attacked 32-year-old Lois D'Andrade. Lois was a secretary for an advertising company that did business with Pacific Far East Lines. Uh, you know, this, uh, this ship uh, company that where David was working as a purser. So passenger uh, ship company. And it ended some freight. Excuse me. Uh, Lois had known David for two years. They met through a mutual friend and she'd had coffee with him. She would say later, you know, four to five times before this incident. On her birthday, June 7th, 1959, David invited her to his home. Uh, Ellen made her and everyone else dinner and cake. David even called Lois to tell her that Ellen was pregnant with her third child. So, you know, they were fairly close. And on July 12th, 1960, David offers this woman, Lois, a ride to work. But instead of driving her to work, he drives her to an isolated spot and then brutally attacks her with a fucking hammer while holding a knife on her. 
How long had he been fixated on her for him to do this? The whole two years he knew her? The attack occurred at 9.30 in the morning near Battery Bailey, an artillery site in the Presidio, a park and former U.S. Army uh, post in San Francisco. Military police officer Jewel W. Hicks was in his patrol car, uh, thankfully, and saw David's car go into a lonely spot that morning. He continued his parole, then went back to check on the car from the top of a 30-foot bank. He now looked down and saw David pinning a woman down and beating her with a hammer. He waited a few minutes to make sure that this was an attack and not some sort of consensual fantasy being acted out. The area had long been a hot spot for couples into hammer play, and he didn't want to risk being accused of kink shaming. No, it was immediately clear that that was super fucked up. Uh, Hicks would tell the San Francisco examiner later, even when he saw me coming down the hill, he kept hitting her. Then he swung at me. I blocked him with my arms, pulled my pistol. He dropped the hammer and ran. Hicks then chased David, uh, who picked the hammer back up. Once he caught uh, up to him, David charged the MP, swinging his hammer, screaming in rage. During an ensuing struggle, David took out a fountain pen tear gas gun he had. Like, why the fuck did he have that? Probably uh, been using it on other women he'd been attacking. And he shot it into the MP's face. Hicks luckily was able to fire off three shots, two of which hit Carpenter and incapacitated him. So Hale Jewel Hicks almost killed that fucker that day. Uh, David unfortunately underwent life-saving surgery for five hours. And two 45 caliber slugs were removed from his body. Lois uh, would survive. She suffered a skull fracture and lacerations on her hands. Uh, had to go uh, undergo, you know, surgery. Lois told officers that she was standing on the street near her apartment when David drove by, offered her a ride to work. Once in the car, he insisted she ride with him to the Presidio to see his wife and baby. Once they got to the area, he said he was lost. Then he drove to the spot near the abandoned artillery sites. When he parked, he suddenly pulled a knife out of his pocket and just said, I have a sex quirk. You do as I say or I'll cut you. He says this to a woman he has known for two years. Uh, hey, Lois, did I ever tell you I have a sex quirk? You're going to help me with it. Or, you know, I'm going to fucking cut you. When Lois refused to take off her shirt, David grew enraged and then he attacked her. He dragged her out of the car into a weed patch and that's when he started uh, assaulting her with a hammer. When David's wife, Ellen, was informed of this attack, uh, attack, she only said it was out of character for David to act that way. That's some weird shit to say. Seems like something along the lines of, what the fuck? He did fucking what? Holy shit, you have to protect me and the kids. Would be more appropriate. But, you know, we all handle stress differently, I guess. Uh, David was charged with one count of assault with intent to commit murder and two counts of assault with a deadly weapon. According to former FBI agent John Douglas, David lost his stutter while making demands to Lois. Lois said he now spoke slowly and deliberately, which was different than the way he normally talked. Uh, Lois D'Andrade later changed her name to Lois Renna, and she is actually the mother of TV personality, former soap actress star, and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star Lisa Renna, born just three years after that attack. Uh, the attack was discussed in the April 16th, 2019 episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Lois, who was 90 years old at the time, said, that was a really bad thing. I knew him. I thought that was it. He's straddling me. He had a hammer in one hand and a knife in the other. That is such a fucking nightmare. Uh, Lisa didn't learn what happened to her mother until she was older. Lois finally explained to her daughter that the reason she had metal plates in her head and was unable to smell was because of that attack. Lisa said, when I finally learned the truth, I had such great sadness and empathy for my mom, knowing that not only did this happen to her, but, she, but that she basically stuffed those feelings for how many years? She never dealt with it. She never talked about it. She never even told her daughter about it. It takes so much courage to come forward. 
November 15th, 2021, or 2021, excuse me, uh, Lisa Renna shared on Instagram that her mom had passed away after suffering a stroke the week before at the age of 93. So at least she went on to live a, a long life. Let's now transition back to David's court case. September 21st, 1960, a federal grand jury indicts David on four counts of assault against Lois and also against uh, Jewel Hicks. October 31st, Halloween, 1960, David pled guilty to the reduced charge of assault with a deadly weapon for the attack on Lois, which helped him avoid a 30-year sentence. Maximum sentence for this charge, five years. So that's just, uh, that's just great. December 7th, 1960, David is sent to federal prison for a 90-day study right before jury selection for the trial starts. David changes his plea to guilty for the assault of Jewel Hicks. March 9th, 1961, he is sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. After his 90-day study, it is determined that he should be imprisoned in the interests of society. Uh, Yeah. However, the judge recommended that the federal parole board release David at any time he is considered rehabilitated. The judge and I very much differed on who is able to be rehabilitated. Uh, While in prison, a psychiatrist reported that David had had a personality disorder, which manifested itself by hostility towards women. Testing also determined that David had an IQ of 125, just a tick below genius on many IQ charts. He knew what he was doing. Uh, March 27th, 1962, David and Ellen get divorced. Ellen did not allow visitation with the children while David was in prison. Good for her, considering what they were, he was fucking charged with. David later saw his kids sporadically when they were adults during the brief time he lived freely. On April 7th, 1969, eight years later, David is paroled from prison. After David's 1969 release, he starts attending group therapy. It won't fucking work. Uh, holy shit, he is about to go berserk. He uh, met a woman, though, in therapy named Helen, and uh, she was a clerk typist at a college five years younger than him. Helen divorced as well. They hit it off real fast. August 8th, 1969, they get married. He's been out of prison a whole four months. What happened to you, Helen? Did you know what he had done? If so, how did you rationalize? Still saying even hello to that motherfucker, let alone marrying him. Uh, December of that year, David stops communicating with the parole board, even though his probation wasn't supposed to end until 1974 and nothing is done. So that's cool. It's not like he's some guy who raped and or molested a bunch of people as a kid and then tried to beat a friend to death with a fucking hammer when she wasn't cool with him raping her. You know, probably not somebody who, uh, you know, we should be keeping a close eye on. January of 1970, Helen, who was described as a naturally high, strong woman driven to the edge of a nervous breakdown, of course she was. She's married, married to this piece of shit. Uh, travels to Hawaii for vacation, leaving David home alone. Right, Five months after being married to David, she's on the edge of a breakdown. I can only imagine how horrible their sex life was. Right, She never said what he was into or how often he demanded they fuck, but I picture it all being very terrible. Uh, author Graysmith wrote, the pressure within him began to reach insurmountable proportions since the safety valve of sex within marriage was not there during his wife's absence. Though Carpenter hit it well, his self-control had eroded to a dangerous degree. Some sort of crisis was building within him and he began to make plans. January 27th, 1970, David crashes his car into the vehicle of 19-year-old Cheryl Lynn Smith on Highway 9 near Boulder Creek. And when she got out of her vehicle, David attacks. Hadn't heard of this one before. Just uh, attacking somebody who you just uh, been in a car accident with him. Drags her into the woods, rips her clothes off like a fucking animal, stabs her repeatedly and tries to rape her. Uh, She was stabbed in the face, shoulders, arms, hand, and back. David said he would follow her home, bandage her up if she didn't call the police. Somehow after all that, Cheryl managed to get back to her car and escape. Cheryl was fucking tough. And she did go to the police, hail Cheryl. 
She described her attacker as white, 30 to 35 years old, 5 foot 10, 160 pounds with brown hair. David went home that night to change clothes and get some supplies. He knew he would be identified soon because his car was registered in his wife's name and Cheryl, he thought, had possibly gotten his license plate number. Yes, she did. Uh, sure enough, he soon hears the San Francisco or a, a San Francisco police officer beating on his front door. He now escapes out the back door, walks all the way to Daly City, sleeps in an abandoned house, and then hitchhikes to Santa Cruz the next morning and goes on an insane rape spree. Guess he decided to get in as much fucking attacking as he could before they caught him again. The next day, so January 20th, day he hitchhikes to uh, Santa Cruz, uh, David breaks into the home of a woman named Wilma Joyce McDonald, age not listed in sources. Wilma was out with her two boys who were seven and three. When the trio returned home, Wilma saw David sitting in a chair in the living room, wearing her husband's robe and holding his shotgun. How unbelievably terrifying. David orders all of them to lie down on the kitchen floor, tells the boys to then go to their room, makes Wilma come with him. Kidnaps her, drives her to uh, the cabin, once owned by his parents, uh, rapes her, and then drives her back home like he thinks he's some kind of fucking gentleman, and then steals her car and leaves. Next day, morning of January 29th, David now holds a woman named Sharon O'Donnell at gunpoint in her apartment, uh, her apartment parking garage, excuse me, in Daly City. Forces her into her car, ties her hands. When he is switching the plates from Sharon's car with the ones from Wilma's car, I'm sure getting ready to rape her, luckily she manages to escape and then he steals her car and leaves. And now, uh, five days later, still hiding out from the cops, on the morning of February 3rd, David robs 45-year-old Lucille Davis at gunpoint, ties her to a bed in the Ray Taylor home where she was working as a cleaner, steals $3 from her, steals her car. If he did rape her, she did not report that to authorities. And I imagine with how underreported sex crimes are, there are probably other victims in this little uh, several-day spree here that just never came forward. 45 minutes after that, David enters the home of a young mother named Barbara Robb, holds her at gunpoint, demands her money and keys, forces her and her infant son to come with him, drives them to a campsite in an area called Sheep Ranch where he rapes Barbara, then forces her to drive him to the outskirts of Oakdale. And while she's driving, he holds her fucking kid also keeps his gun pointed at her. He smiled at Barbara and said, it's been a long time since I held a baby this small. Barbara would later recall, I remember him as quite kind. He was especially gentle with my baby. What? <laughs> How is that a quote from her? I mean, he's very kind. I mean, other than the raping, of course. Less kind with the raping. Uh, this piece of shit now finally arrested at a Greyhound bus depot in Modesto. That evening after a massive manhunt, sheriff's investigators had identified Carpenter after Cheryl Lynn made her report. She had managed to get his license plate number. Uh, Thank God David now charged in two places, Santa Cruz County and Calaveras County. David's charges include rape, attempted rape, kidnapping, robbery, burglary, and assault. All that happening less than a year after he was released from prison, right? A few months after he stopped visiting his parole officer. Also, since sex crimes, uh, typically, again, not reported, I highly doubt those were the only women he attacked, right? How long did he wait after being released before this poor impulse control having motherfucker started attacking? Like a day, a week? Less than two months later, on the night of April 26, 1970, David Carpenter, four other inmates escape from the Calaveras County Jail. Uh, uh, the five men were housed in one of six cells in the jail during a routine check at 11.30 p.m. A staff member found the men missing. David and the other inmates luckily recaptured the next day. Hopefully he didn't do additional stuff. A few days later, May 1st, 1970, David receives a five-year-to-life sentence for armed robbery. For kidnapping, he receives a sentence of one to 25 years. For auto theft and escape, he's sentenced to five months to five years on each charge. All right, he takes, a, he takes a plea deal here. 
Uh, two and a half months later, July 16th, 1970, grand jury indicts David on even more charges in Santa Cruz County. He's already serving time in Calaveras County for uh, the other stuff. Uh, that fall, October 5th, 1970, David pleads guilty to rape and armed robbery. A few weeks later, October 29th, sentenced to 20 more years in prison. But of course, because I'm telling this story, that won't happen. It's all going to be concurrent and he will get out way, way earlier than he should have. Despite all those convictions and sentences, despite the, the shit happening after he just got out of prison for trying to rape another woman and beating her to death, you know, trying to beat her to death with a fucking hammer. Despite all the sex crimes he was found guilty of committing as a kid as well. Less than nine years later, May of 1979, David Carpenter released to a federal halfway house in the Tenderloin District. I truly do not understand how people can hear about cases like this and still be cool with how lenient our justice system is when it comes to dangerous, sexually motivated, violent predators. I don't think the primary focus with these fuckers should be rehabilitation. It should be permanent removal from society, whether through lifelong incarceration or execution. Right? David should have never been able to walk free again after all the shit we've gone over. Uh, one study from 1985 I found on the website for the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs found that recidivists were most likely to be young males who had not graduated from high school. Check. Releasees with juvenile arrest convictions or incarcerations were more likely to recidivate than those without juvenile criminal histories. Check. Those with two or more prior incarcerations, probation revocations, or parole revocations uh, were more likely to recidivate. And again, check. On the website for SMART, the U.S. Office of Sex Offenders Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking, I found that in a 2007 study for sex offenders, they had a violent crime recidivism rate of 42.9% within the first dozen years of being released. And as high as that is, they noted that recidivism rates are not true reoffense rates because sex crimes are so underreported. They then cite additional studies that show that roughly one in four or less of sex crimes are ever reported to authorities and that most of those reported crimes do not end in convictions. They cited other studies that revealed sex offenders discussing sex crimes with prison counselors while in treatment programs. And while uh, when referenced, uh, like what their confessions, whenever they're talking about these, uh, these attacks, when those attacks would be referenced against their arrest reports, only 5% of the crimes they admitted to were crimes they'd actually been charged with. So they had gotten away with 95% of their sex crimes. So while this is, again, me doing some speculating, it sure fucking seems like when you zoom out, look at all these numbers, when you look at study after study that reveal the brains of violent pedophiles and rapists uh, display that they, you know, even when they're not acting on sexual impulses, they still have the same sexual impulses that got them into trouble. It seems like these particular zebras, to reference the old idiom, do not change their stripes, right? They just get better at hiding them for a while sometimes. Finally, because David was in federal custody at the end of his sentence, he would not be put on the California Sex Offender Registry, back when agencies communicated with each other way less often than now. And since the police will look at the California Sex Offender Registry during the trailside killer investigation when trying to find their serial killer, this glitch in record keeping will delay his next arrest for even worse crimes. Less than three months after this, al- af- uh, excuse me, after this asshole is released, on August 19th, 1979, 44-year-old Etta Kane is murdered in the Mount Tamalpais State Park, the trailside killer's first known murder victim and the first known murder in the park's uh, history. It had been established back in 1963. Etta was a married bank executive who enjoyed being active. She was last seen alive by someone who knew her at 10 a.m. August 19th when she went out to hike on Mount Tamalpais. Several people later saw her hiking that day. 
Edda told her husband, John, that she'd be back home around 2 p.m. When she did not come back home that afternoon, he called the sheriff's department, reported her missing, and a search was quickly initiated. Edda's partially clad body was found at 7.45 p.m. August 20th, 75 feet off the Rock Springs Trail. One source said that all she was wearing was a single sock. Oh, man. So her body found the next day. Initially, no foul play was suspected because typically that is what Etta would wear when she went hiking. Uh, that's not true. And it might have been super fucked up for me to share. Uh, it just hit me as an intrusive thought. And not thinking about, uh, you know, how horribly tragic this obviously is. I just couldn't stop imagining someone as I was doing my research who frequently went hiking, but just always wore one sock. Like that was their hiking outfit, was just one sock. Just just forget I said anything. Uh, Edda's car was found parked at the mountain home in parking lot. She had apparently started her hike there. Edda was attacked from behind, had a bullet wound in the back of her skull. She was found on her knees with her face on the ground. And the police believed that she was possibly, if not probably, forced to show subservience to the shooter or maybe begging, uh, was begging for her life. The killer stole 10 bucks, her credit cards, and her glasses. Edda's autopsy determined that she was shot with a 44 caliber gun and was the victim of an execution-style attack. Autopsy would determine that she was not raped. And I'm guessing the only reason uh, she wasn't was because, like Lois before, you know, uh, she wouldn't do what he wanted. So he uh, attacked her. Then once he fired that shot, maybe he was worried it would just bring unwanted attention and he just, you know, split. No one could think of who would want to hurt Etta. Five days after Etta's murder, August 24th, the Marin County Sheriff's Office released composite drawings of two suspicious men seen on Mount Tamalpais August 19th. First man described as wearing a dark blue hooded sweatshirt, dark blue jogging pants, white, mid-30s, six foot, 160 pounds. Second man, white, 25 to 30 years old, blonde, collar-length hair, wearing cut-off shorts, a shirt, and a backpack, and described as athletic and muscular. Neither description, uh, if the witnesses had seen David, would end up matching what he looked like, unfortunately. A little over two weeks later, September 6, 1979, David is released from the halfway house he had been staying at, one that clearly did not keep him from killing. And he moves back in with his parents on Sussex Street, back to his childhood home. Delightful, the band's back together. Uh, Dave would later testify that he uh, wanted to go live with his brother. But his dad was in his 80s, his mom was in her 70s. He talked to his sister, and uh, her sister and brother agreed that he should live with his parents so he could help look after them. And they probably didn't want that creepy fucker, you know, living around either of them. If he had been horribly abused by them, would he have been encouraged to go live with them? I mean, maybe. But again, I wonder if his childhood was that bad at home. Uh, While he was committing his new horrific crimes against hikers, David pretended to have a normal life. He graduated from the California trade school after taking computer printing courses and got a job as a typesetter instructor at an agency affiliated with the school. David's parole officers didn't initially suspect he was Edda's killer because he was meeting all the conditions of his parole, part of which was staying in Northern California. He was curiously uh, not required to get psychiatric treatment. After he was arrested, a U.S. parole commissioner told the San Francisco Chronicle, he's done everything you could ask anyone to do in terms of complying with his parole supervision. Huh. October 21st, 1979, 23-year-old Mary Frances Bennett goes out for a trail run, never comes home. Group of hikers found her body by following a bloody trail near the Palace of the Legion of Honor at Land's End in Lincoln Park, right in San Francisco. Her body was still warm. She had been stabbed 25 times and buried in a shallow grave. Some people at a nearby golf course uh, could hear her long agonized screams, but did not see her get attacked. Not sure how hard they tried to find her and help her if they tried at all. Police officer said she was, quote, butchered. 
Mary had grown up in the little town of Deer Lodge, Montana, moved to San Francisco after graduating from accounting school in Montana. She was working as an intern at an accounting firm, and when she died, she was wearing a t-shirt that said, Hell's Accountant. Carpenter was suspected of this crime after his arrest, but the police had a hard time building a solid, solid enough case against him in time for his trial. But based on evidence I'll share before this episode is over, uh, yeah, he killed her, for sure. By 1980, David was no longer working as a typesetter instructor. Not sure what happened there. Probably creeping people out and got fucking asked to leave. Uh, now he was working for Gems of the Golden West, a small firm that made keychains and other novelty items and sold them to gift shops, automotive stores, and other merchandisers. Florence and Jack Newman, longtime family friends, hired David as a warehouseman after he finished a printing course at the California Trade School in Hayward. Did they know what he went to jail for? Like, could you hire one of your friend's kids if you knew that they did what David did? I could not. I'm not sure I could hire my own kid if they had David's arrest record. Like, I love my kids to death, but if they did that shit, I'm not sure I could, you know, remain in their lives. Hopefully I'm never faced with a choice that difficult. Uh, David had to travel to sell keychains and detectives later wondered if David might have been involved in several homicides based in locations he was traveling to. Like in September of 1979, 19-year-old Carol Laughlin went missing. Carol worked in the Curry Village gift shop in Yosemite National Park. And Gems of Golden West, or Gems of the Golden West, did supply items to that gift shop. David had been there to drop off uh, supplies, you know, several times. Carol's remains found at the base of a tunnel near Cookie Cliff, April 28, 1980. On Thanksgiving Day, 1979, a woman named Diane Steffi found strangled at the entrance to Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. David often in that area of the park for work as well. 19-year-old Jennifer McDowell, last seen waiting for the bus outside of the Santa Cruz Hospital, May 27, 1980. Body found October 19th of that year. David also frequently in and around Santa Cruz. Uh, David would not be charged with any of these murders due to lack of evidence. But many members of law enforcement sure seemed to uh, think he was the killer. And it would only make sense that he killed these women and many, many other women around this time. He had a very stressful job, right? He had to move a lot of fucking keychains and he couldn't focus. If you'll recall what Dr. Dipshit, aka Dr. Uh, Ralph Allison said about him, unless he was planning or committing rapes and he still had a stutter. I mean, I mean, he's still stuttering. How's he supposed to not rape if he's stuttering? Uh, March 8th, 1980, 23-year-old Barbara Schwartz killed inside the Mount Tamalpais State Park. Barbara was out hiking with her dog that day. Around 5.30 p.m., a bystander witnessed a man attack her and stab her to death. The witness said that Barbara's dog was barking as the man approached. He suddenly stabbed Barbara in the chest with a knife. They fought for almost a minute, a minute, and he ran away when Barbara fell to the ground. The woman who witnessed this then ran away to get help, uh, so the police were able to quick, uh, did you know go run to get help, so the police were able to quickly process the crime scene and take her report. Unfortunately, not able to save her. Uh, the witness described the killer as a young Caucasian man wearing a dark jacket and dark jeans. She said he had a hawk nose and dark hair. Unfortunately, her description, not accurate. And she would later admit that in court, which is fucking weird. Crazy that she watched this whole attack and then couldn't uh, relay a reliable description of the guy. Yeah, yeah, I really fucked up. I mean, uh, you would think I would have described him more accurately since I uh, sat and watched the entire murder play out while I ate some popcorn and drank a soda. But I guess I was just too distracted by all the action. Uh, other hikers reported seeing a man wearing glasses who looked to be in his 40s. I'm sure she was, you know, terrified and stressed out, obviously. Uh, he was wearing a raincoat. Dave was 49 years old at that time. So, you know, their description, fairly accurate, but they didn't get a close look at him. Uh, Barbara had been living in Marin County for a year and a half. She baked bread, sold it to people in the area. Also liked to go hiking, which is why she lived near the trails. 
Her dog, Lady, was found alive near her body, uh, but then Lady was euthanized for being a worthless little bitch who didn't do shit to save her mom. You know, good. If a dog can't or won't help you in your time of need, you got to fucking put it down. Fuck Lady. Shameful. Investigators quickly determined that Barbara's purse was untouched and her cabin in Tampa Pius uh, hadn't been broken into or robbed. Barbara had 12 horrific chest wounds. The pathologist estimated that the killer used a 10-inch knife to repeatedly stab her. And a butcher knife was later found in the area by two teens on March 8th. The sheriff's investigators said it was highly probable that that was the murder weapon. The knife was found in a ravine very close to the trail where Barbara's body was found. The teen boys didn't touch the knife, uh, but a member of a Channel 2 TV crew whom the boys led to the knife did pick it up like a fucking idiot. Fingerprints, shithead. Oh, and also, uh, I have no idea what happened to Lady the Dog. I'm guessing she was taken in by family. What was she supposed to do? Right? My little doodles, Penny and Dee Dee, they wouldn't do shit to save me or Lindsay or the kids if any one of us was attacked. I think witnessing real violence might actually cause both of their little sheltered and pampered asses just to drop dead of a heart attack or something. Right? They would just, they would just fall over, just dead of sadness. Uh, March 14th, 1980, Marin County investigators revealed that they had recovered eyeglasses that probably belonged to the man who killed Barbara. The glasses found at the scene on March 8th still had blood on them, but investigators didn't know who they belonged to. They did actually belong to David Carpenter, uh, who got his prescription for those glasses from the same fucking doctor that Barbara used, but that wasn't caught here. Uh, the sheriff's office sent out descriptions of the glasses to optometrists, glass grinders, and ophthalmologists. The glasses were prescribed for someone whose right ear was lower and closer to the front of his face than the left ear. Sheriff's office hoped this unique clue would help them find the owner of the glasses. Unfortunately, would not, even though they quickly put up posters around the area asking if anyone had seen a man with a, quote, lopsided, fucked up, weird looking ghoul face. Someone who is, quote, highly unfuckable. (laughs) Someone who, quote, looked more Muppet than man. Uh, No, I don't think they put up any of those posters. Uh, Sheriff Al Howenstein confirmed that human blood was found in the butcher's uh, knife and the knife had recently been on sale at Safeway. And it was only available in Marin County at the Mill Valley Safeway. So bingo, bango. That was a nice break. It'll help uh, later in trial, but it won't help find the guy, unfortunately. Investigators check lists of recently released convicts and those with a record of sex crimes to see if any of them wore glasses or had weird monster faces. Uh, they really did check the list. But David, of course, his, his name doesn't show up because, you know, of that whole federal versus state crime paperwork mix up where he's not put on the California list. In the summer of 1980, the police in the Bay Area asked the FBI for help with the Trailside Killer case and Special Agent John Douglas, we've met him a few times, an emerging superstar profiler who worked for the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit would put together a a very good profile. Uh, Douglas traveled to San Francisco to look at the uh, crime scene data and case photos. He believed the killer would be familiar with the area and that the killer would be shy, reclusive, and may have a speech impediment. Boom, boom, boom. Interesting that he nailed the speech impediment. Does having a mush mouth, is that technically a speech impediment? Does that make you primed uh, to become a sexually motivated serial killer? Uh-oh. Uh, local psychologists described the potential killer as charming, sophisticated, and attractive. However, Douglas thought he was the type of person to be unsure of himself in social situations, which would be more accurate. Uh, Douglas thought the killer chose victims of opportunity. He believed he was white, intelligent, blue collar, spent, and had spent time in jail. Right? And again, check, 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 check. Said the killer's MO was to attack from behind and uh, and become aggressive to overwhelm the victim, which also was true. In most, in many cases, the killer would have a history of at least two uh, out of three background indicators, he said, fire starting, bedwetting, and animal cruelty. 
And we have learned since that the so-called McDonald's triad of bedwetting, fire starting, and cruelty towards animals in one's youth, not the indicator of future criminal violence we once thought it was. But still, Douglas did nail it with David. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, the flies we referenced. They didn't mention specific things, but some sources mentioned other instances of uh, unnamed animal cruelty. And we know that the bedwetting was a big thing. Uh, Douglas believed that the killer had raped before, but not killed. And that the killer had recently experienced some precipitating stressors. Right? He was good. He was good. He, I mean, he had raped before many times, but it uh, doesn't seem he had killed. Task force members, though, were skeptical about this, especially about the speech impediment detail. And they uh, basically ignored it. Uh, Douglas explained to them the factors that indicated shyness or shame. The secluded crime scenes, the method of approach, the fact that the killer did not approach the victim in a social situation. Overpowering a victim gave the killer, he said, a sense of compensation for his handicap. So now they do have a detailed, detailed profile that was very accurate, but they have no suspect to compare it to at this time. And investigators, again, the non-FBI investigators, they don't, uh, they don't put a lot of stock in this. You know, profiling pretty new at this time. Too bad uh, they didn't latch onto that note about the stuttering, right? That would have helped, uh, you know, catch him a lot sooner than he was caught, I'm guessing. October 11th, 1980, 19-year-old Richard Stowers. Dick quota for this episode met. And 18-year-old Cynthia Moreland both go missing. Uh, Rick and Cindy were engaged. Rick was stationed with the U.S. Coast Guard at the Two Rock Coast Guard training base. And Cynthia had recently graduated from Rancho Cotate High School. Cindy and Rick were last seen leaving the home of one of Cindy's sisters in Pacifica. They were supposed to go to Rick's military training station. Cindy's father, Ronald, said it didn't occur to him that uh, they would stop to go hiking. On October 11th, some hikers at the Point Reyes National Seashore hear gunshots between 1 and 2 p.m. Just four days later, October 15th, 1980, 26-year-old Ann Alderson found dead in the Mount Tamalpais State Park. Ann's body found a quarter mile east of Mountain Theater on Mount Tamalpais, uh, less than 10 miles from San Francisco. Her car found near her body and had been shot in the head at close range with a 38 caliber pistol. Found propped up uh, face up against a rock. It appeared that she may have been forced to kneel before she was killed, similar to the Etta Kane murder. Anne was found clothed. Uh, sperm was found in her body, though, indicating, of course, she'd had sexual intercourse around the time of her death. And one of her earrings was missing, just one. This little earring detail will come up again with at least one more body. Anne last seen by a park caretaker at 5.30 p.m. October 13th, sitting at the Mount Mountain Theater, just two days after the murders of Rick Stowers and Cynthia Moreland reported missing on the morning of October 14th by her father, Robert supposed to have come home the night before and a search party had been organized to look for her. According to author, Robert Graysmith, the park caretaker also saw a man in the area uh, around the age of 50 standing by himself. David was 50 this time. Two other witnesses saw Anne near the area where Etta Kane had been killed. The next day, two more bodies found bodies that will distract investigators for a bit from looking for the real trailside killer. October 16th, 1980, uh, two people found dead near Mount Tampa Pius inside a home. The victims were 45-year-old Edwin McDermott and his 75-year-old mother, Helen. At 8.30 p.m., sheriff's deputies forced their way into the home at the request or into their home at the request of a family friend, find Edwin's body lying in the hallway to the left of the living room, had uh, bullet wounds to the head and chest. Helen's body found in a locked bedroom. She was lying on the bed covered by a blanket, been shot once behind the left ear. There were eight spent 22 caliber casings scattered on the floor. Five of those found near Edwin's body. One was in the living room near the door to Helen's room. One was near a bookshelf between Edwin and Helen's rooms. And one was in Edwin's room. 
Deputies found a padlocked door leading into the basement. They break in. They find a creepy-ass note stuck to the uh, back of the door addressed to shitheels. And it stated that by the time the note was found, the reader would be way too late. Said the writer would either be on the news or on a slab. And the note was signed, Mr. Hate. Uh, Edwin's brother Mark had been living in the basement. The police found spent 38 caliber casings in his room, three live rounds of 22 caliber ammo, and ankle holsters for a handgun and a knife. The coroner said it was not possible to determine an exact time of death, but samples of the vitreous humor fluid from the victim's eyes suggested they died three to four days previously. A few days later, the local papers, the Marin County Sheriff and other staff members received letters from someone claiming responsibility for these murders. A writer said he would not be captured alive. A handwriting expert testified that the writer was the same person who wrote that creepy note found on the basement door. Uh, the police decided to publish a letter addressed to, addressed to Mark, giving him a phone number to call and saying that he would be treated fairly if he surrendered. Many authorities, many members of the press thought that the author of the uh, letter was the trailside killer and David had to have loved that. Mark McDermott called authorities on the evening of October 24th, said he would consider giving himself up, but had to do some things first. Called two days later, shared some details about the murders only investigators or the killer would know. Said he tried to kill his mom and brother quickly, but miscalculated, had to shoot Edwin five to six times. He said he just wanted to stop Edwin from hurting others and to prevent his mom from realizing that he killed him. Mark turned himself in the next day. He was wearing a belt with a 38 caliber revolver in it, had a set of thumb cuffs, three speed loaders. Investigators found a 22 caliber pistol, pistol, 12 gauge shotgun, some ammo, a metal box with hypodermic syringes and insulin in his car. The police quickly learned that his brother Edwin had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and that Edwin's condition had deteriorated and Mark called him it or the thing. In the six months before the murders, Mark had told a friend more than once that he didn't know what would happen to Edwin once their mother died and that one day he would, quote, put it out of its misery. Mark burrowed the guns used in the murders, or borrowed, excuse me, burrowed, he burrowed. He fucking dug a small hole in the yard. Uh, where, you know, maybe a badger could live. And he decided to put his guns there. Now, he borrowed the guns used in the uh, murders and prepared to go out on the run for months, said he acted out of diminished capacity and indicated he also had schizophrenia. Evidence showed that Mark had a long history of experiencing headaches and blackouts. Mark soon claimed he didn't remember the murders or that he, uh, you know, remembered things differently. Mark was not found legally insane, was found guilty of first-degree murder, sentenced to death in November of 1988. He would die of heart failure in 1988 at the age of 42. Now, the police would rule Mark out as the trailside killer a little after his arrest because none of his weapons uh, matched the bullets used on the two victims who were shot. Uh, but it did, again, kind of throw a monkey wrench in things for a second. And also the murders continued after he was arrested, right? So he couldn't have been the guy. But again, uh, this gave David Carpenter, I'm sure, let him uh, breathe a sigh of relief for at least a little while. Uh, speaking of continuing murders, November 28th, 1980, David murdered two more women. 25-year-old Shauna May, 22-year-old Diane O'Connell in the Point Reyes National Seashore Park. Diane and Shauna didn't know each other. They both happened to go out for a hike that day on the same trail with some friends. Shauna May was from San Francisco. Diane O'Connell was a student visiting the Bay Area. She had recently graduated from Cornell. And Shauna and Diane were hiking at opposite ends of the trail that crosses Mount Wittenberg in Point Reyes. Shauna had to hike in a bit to meet up with her friends. Diane was part of a group of three hikers. She was second coming down the trail. One of Diane's friends later told investigators that she was walking down the Sky Trail, as it was called, or is called, about 100 yards ahead of Diane when she was startled, suddenly saw a man standing in the bushes just off the trail. His back was turned towards her. He was white with dark hair of average build and height, 
One of Diane's relatives said the witness reported that she thought she surprised the man. She figured he had stepped off the trail to take a piss, was worried that he was going to expose himself, so she started walking faster. The third member of their group caught up with her, and then soon both of them wondered where the hell Diane was. Uh, the witness told the police that she never saw Shauna May, which means it is likely that the killer already had Shauna off the trail, then took Diane when she passed by minutes later. So maybe some new fantasy where he wanted two women at the same time. Didn't even get two women who knew each other or were out together. Reminds me of Bundy, Ted Bundy at the sorority house in Florida, right at the end of his killing spree when he just went fucking berserk. Uh, Carpenter's becoming more reckless as his lust escalates. Excuse me. Uh, between 3.10 and 3.20 p.m., hikers in the park reported hearing gunshots. Shauna's friends contacted park officials when she failed to meet up with them that day. A search was quickly launched in the park for the young women. Rangers, volunteers, the police searched the park that day, and a searcher soon saw a shoe sticking out of some ferns. Uh, the shoe led them to the location of two dead bodies, but not the ones they were looking for. They found Richard Sowers and Cynthia Moreland lying face down in the underbrush. Rick and Cindy both been shot in the head. Shell casings at the scene matched the Ann Alderson crime scene, meaning the gun was a 38 caliber pistol. Later that day, Diane and Shauna are found side by side, face down, about 200 yards away from Cynthia and Rick's bodies. Both women found naked. Four bodies, one day. Diane had a pair of underwear stuffed into her mouth and nose area. Another pair of bloody underwear was on her arm. Diane had been raped and strangled with a narrow piece of wire or cord while she was still alive. She and Shauna both shot in the head. Shauna, shot, uh, Shauna was uh, shot three times, Diane once. Shauna had ligature marks on her wrists where she had also been raped. Or scars, excuse me, and she had also been raped. Uh, the police assumed that the killer interrupted one of the women while hiking with the intention to rape her. Then another woman came across them, uh, had to be killed so she wouldn't report him. Or, you know, he just wanted to shake shit up. Had some new impulsive fantasy he wanted to act out. Maybe he had a really tough week selling fucking keychains. Needed to be extra focused, according to Dr. Dipshit. Uh, Cindy was officially identified after her father brought her dental charts to the Marin County Sheriff's Office. Her dad, Roland, frustrated because he, uh, he reported that his daughter was missing. Um, and that report had somehow never made it to the Point Reyes National Seashore Rangers, even though Cindy's car was found in the parking lot just 150 yards from park headquarters. He believed the car had been there for seven uh, weeks. Yeah, seven weeks. He followed a report with the Cotati and Pacifica Police, then the Marin County Sheriff's Office. He didn't follow reports specifically with the park rangers because he believed his other report reports would be circulated. Sheriff's Captain Bob Gadini said that the Point Reyes National Seashore offices were not part of the teletype system that the Sheriff's Office received 40 missing persons reports every day. That is, that is a lot, man. 40 missing persons reports a day. Also, how much did it suck for law enforcement agencies back then when it came to getting needed information from other agencies? Right, You're being bombarded with bad tips, probably false missing persons reports for uh, people who just, you know, uh, oftentimes just, you know, we're going to show up home a couple days later, just didn't want to be found, etc. Oh man, tricky to track people back then. Rick Stowers had been declared a deserter two weeks earlier after 30 days of being AWOL. Uh, the military had no idea where he might have gone. Police now wondered if there were either two killers in the same area or if the same person went looking for victims in two, loca two locations. Ballistics confirmed that the person who killed Anne also killed Shauna and Diane. Uh, hikers now warned not to hike alone in any of the area's parks. Many people who love the outdoors too scared to go hiking for law uh, for months. Local law enforcement, you know, now they began running those mounted patrols along the trails to deter future killings. Marin County Sheriff G. Albert Howenstein Jr. had a composite made based on witness statements. 
but it was difficult to pin down what the man actually looked like due to those statements being conflicting. December 28th, 1980, 17-year-old Anna Kelly Menjivar goes missing. And now David Carpenter gets put back on law enforcement radar. He quickly becomes a suspect in her disappearance and death, if not uh, as a suspect for the trailside killings right away. Uh, He was a customer at the Continental Savings and Loan Bank in Glen Park, where Anna worked part-time. He was seen talking with Anna, and he was fucking creepy. Based on his fixation, uh, this 50-year-old dude had for a 17-year-old, one of the customers warned management about him. And they warned management just a few days before Anna disappeared. Just thought that David was too into her. Anna went missing between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. December 28th while her mom and 14-year-old brother were asleep. The police believe she went out jogging because she left her purse, ID, and money at home. She was wearing sweater, jeans, and tennis shoes. Anna's mother, Juanita, said that Anna had recently been talking to her about David. Uh, She said she felt sorry for him because of a stutter. The Daily City Police then learned that David promised Anna a gift for her mom. Juanita said that David had recently taken Anna to the Gems of the Golden West uh, Incorporated Warehouse, where he still worked, gave her a box of keychains and ceramic dolls, which she was going to give out to some people as Christmas gifts. However, without a body, police have no idea if Anna's disappearance is connected to the trailside killer victims. They don't know, obviously, if she's even dead. Uh, They already had dozens of trailside killer suspects, loose suspects, but still. So David now on their radar, but barely one of many creepy dudes in the same area who may have done some horrible shit. And that is another thing that makes it got to make it tough for uh, law enforcement with these situations. There are just so many creeps out there just inside the city limits right now in San Francisco. There are 827 registered sex offenders living there, not counting any of the transients who might also be sex offenders. There's another 908 Right across the uh, bay in Oakland, uh, another 116 in Marin County, 663 in nearby San Mateo County, on and on. You know, there's well over 100,000 in the state. And again, in this case, the sex offender registries that the police are looking at don't even list David. January 21st, 1981 now. In the middle of all this killing, David suddenly uh, finds himself time to get a girlfriend. Why not? And gets her to move in with him. A woman named Candace Dawn Townsend, or Townsend. Age not listed in sources, moves in with Carpenter and his parents the day they meet. He met her that morning. Earlier that month, David's boss, Jack Newman, started sending him down to Fisherman's Wharf to sell keychains to tourists there. And I guess he was doing a good job. He was happy about his progress, met up with his parole officer to tell him about it uh, early on January 21st. On his way to see his parole officer, David met Candace at the intersection of Golden Gate and Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. Candy was passing through San Francisco on her way to stay with a friend in Guerneville, David later recalled, and how fucking creepy is this recollection? This is a quote. What drew me to her was she had two black eyes. I don't think I've ever seen a woman with two. One, maybe. What the fuck? That's what attracts you to somebody? I like this lady. There's something about her. Something about her eyes. Oh, I know what it is. I like how I won't be the first person to have really hurt her. Somebody's already trained her. Right? Right? It's so fucking dark. This guy's so fucked up. Uh, some creep known as Bud had given Candace the black eyes down in Los Angeles. Her car had broken down off the freeway. David now offers to have her car towed, right? She's in desperate circumstances. Uh, he tells her he has business to attend to. He'll be back in an hour. After meeting up with his parole officer, he goes back, uh, meets up with Candy. Candy tells him that she doesn't have money to have her car repaired. And according to David, she made it very obvious. She would do anything to get up to Guerneville. Uh, So they meet a third time that evening. After David gets off work, he promises to have her car towed to a garage fixed after they have dinner. 
Uh, before they had dinner, they fucked in the backseat of his Chevy. Candy would later say he stopped the car in an isolated spot near Sausalito. It was actually very near to Mount Tamalpais. It was dark, hilly, lots of trees. No one else was around. It was frightening. I felt very uneasy about the whole thing. He asked me to marry him after talking about prostitution and having sex with him and offering me money. We had sex in the back seat. He showed me a turnoff where people hiked up the mountain. I remember he mentioned the death of a woman on Mount Tamalpais as we drove by the state park. This is also absurd. Hey, uh, how much do I have sex with you right now? Oh, you're not working? This is a real date? Cool. Do you want to get married? I like women who I don't have to sneak out of the bushes and threaten with a gun to have sex with me. I like women I don't have to hit with a hammer. Uh, Candy told him that she had worked as a cocktail waitress and a truck driver, that she wanted to get a waitressing job in San Francisco. Only reason she was traveling to Guerneville was because she didn't have anywhere else to stay. So while they ate dinner, David again tells Candy that he would like, to, <laughs> he would like them to get married. He said, I have very strong romantic feelings towards you. I want to marry you. He's known her a couple hours. Candy said, I'm not so sure about the marriage, but she agrees to move in with David at his parents' house that night. So again, you know, desperate situation. February of 1981 now. Uh, David begins working for a company called Econo Quickprint. Why the sudden switch after he was supposedly killing it, pun not intended actually, uh, selling keychains down on Fisherman's Wharf? Sources do not say, but I imagine something happened. Maybe the family friends who hired him got one too many complaints about him creeping the fuck out of all the women he's around or something. March 29th, 1981, 20-year-old Ellen Hansen and her boyfriend, 21-year-old Steve Hartle, both attacked in the Henry Cow Redwood State Park near Santa Cruz. Ellen and Steve, both UC Davis students, enjoying being young, in love, and on spring break. They went to the park March 27th for a weekend camping trip, and on Sunday the 29th, they went for a hike on the Ridge Trail. They went to an observation deck, then hiked the Ridge Trail towards the Cathedral Redwoods. A mile from the observation deck, they encountered a man walking in the opposite direction. They didn't speak to each other, and Steve and Ellen continued walking to the Cathedral Redwoods, stayed there for a few minutes, looking around, then retraced their steps to get back to their campsite. While they were on the trail, they see the man again, and he says, oh, we've met again, and then pulls out a revolver. He points the gun at them and tells them, do what I say. Steve puts his hands up, but the man, later identified, of course, as David Carpenter, orders him to put his hands down and says, do what I say, you won't get hurt. Carpenter gestures at Steve, tells him to go down the trail. Uh, he steps back, but then Ellen says, don't listen to him, Steve. Don't listen to what he says. Steve pleads with Carpenter to please let them go. Carpenter only responds with, now listen to me and do what I say. He approaches, looks at Ellen and just fucking says straight up, I want to rape you. Pretty fucking terrifying choice of words, right? Didn't even open with, I would like to fuck you. Wait for her to say, well, that's not going to happen. And then say, well, I guess I'm going to rape you. No, just opens with rape. Hel uh, Ellen responds, no, I'm not going to let you. And then she moves to stand in between Steve and David further. Uh, she does it with the fucking gun pointed at her, brave meat sack. Steve says to Ellen, Ellen, stay away from him. He has a gun. And Ellen responds, Steve, he's going to shoot us anyway. Don't listen to him. Fucking tough ass person. Carpenter orders both of them to move towards the bushes off the side of the trail, gesturing with his gun. Steve begs David to leave them alone. According to a court document, when they now move towards the edge of the trail, or I guess at least Steve does, Steve starts to lose his footing, and then he hears gunshots. Ellen is shot first. He is quickly shot next. Steve said it felt like somebody hit his neck with a sledgehammer. The next thing he remembers is waking up on the ground, 
Uh, when he looks around, he sees Ellen. This is so sad. Uh, she is lying face down on the ground with her head uh, in a pool of blood. Steve picks up her head to see if she's alive. She's dead. He then sees Carpenter across the trail, turned away from him. He'd only passed out for maybe a minute or so. Steve gets up, runs to the observation deck, you know, holding his neck as fast as he can while Carpenter flees the area. Dude was a lot of things, but I guess not a necrophiliac, right? Once these women are dead, he has no interest. Father and son Leland and Kenneth Fritz happened to be in the park when these murders occur. Around 5 p.m., they saw Carpenter on the observation deck and spoke with him. They saw that he occasionally looked towards the ridge trail with binoculars, and he left the observation deck using the ridge trail. Campers Fred and Maureen Morse also saw David around the time of the murders, saw him drink from a water fountain near the observation deck. Mere minutes later, everyone hears gunshots coming from the trail. The Fritzes started walking towards the gunshots. They see Steve, bloodied, staggering, coming towards them. Steve tells him uh, what happens or what had just happened. The Fritzes help Steve get to the deck, leave him with the Morses uh, before they go to get help. Maureen is a nursing assistant and administers first aid. Fred Morse goes to look for Ellen, encounters David on the way. David said, someone shot along the trail. And then the dude just kept walking. Steve now sees David, points at him and yells to Maureen, lady, that's the man that shot me. Get out of here. Good on Steve, man. Brave dude. Thinking of Maureen as he sits bleeding from a fucking bullet wound to his neck. David just casually continues walking away. Maureen would later testify that David was walking through the clearing like he didn't see us or hear Hartle yelling. When he was out of view, she went down to the path towards Fred. Uh, they were able to get Steve taken to a hospital. Leland Fritz, a young girl who was in the park, reported seeing David speeding away shortly after all this in a red Fiat. It was determined that Ellen died of two gunshot wounds to the head, one gunshot wound to the right shoulder, fired at close range. Steve was shot in the back of the neck. The bullet hit one of his arteries, missed his heart by two inches, uh, and he would be in the hospital for eight days. Steve described the killer from his hospital bed as having crooked yellow teeth, said he was about 50 years old and balding, wore dark glasses, had a backpack, was wearing a gold jacket with lettering on the back and a baseball cap. He was 5'10 to 6 foot, about 170 pounds. According to the Post Standard, seven witnesses reported this man to the police. The physical description differed slightly, right, from one uh, uh, to the next and from the description of the Marin County killer, but the MO was the same. Investigators obtained shoe print impressions of the scene to compare to the suspect's shoes if they were able to find him. The composite drawing was published in the newspapers, was pretty accurate, right, thanks to a bunch of eyewitnesses. After speaking with investigators in Marin County, Santa Cruz County Sheriff Al Noren says he is confident that the man, uh, that the same man committed five of the murders in Marin County. Local investigators now speculate that there is a sexual motive to the murders. Marin County Sheriff Al Howenstein uh, says he thinks the killer kills for psychological relief. Uh, again, sad that it doesn't sound like they really uh, still utilized FBI Special Agent John Douglas's profile. Uh, the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Department now organizes a six-person task force after the Hanson murder. Eventually, Marin County and the FBI, uh, you know, join this task force. April of 1980, Candy and David's relationship is already beginning to deteriorate. I'm surprised it lasted more than just a few days. Uh, David bought her an engagement ring, but Candy not interested. And in April, she tells him he's uh, that she is moving out. David was, quote, very upset about this. Candy started spending weekends away from the home. David would say that the final straw occurred when Candy called him at 3.30 in the morning. She was drunk and wanted him to come down and help her find her car. David picked her up, but didn't let her drive. Later that month, he gave her notice to vacate the house by May 3rd. Candy moved out on April 30th. Fucking crazy that David struggled to maintain a uh, romantic relationship with somebody. 
But also, Candy sounds like a hot mess. Not as much of a mess as David, but a mess. One of them maybe drinks too much, uh, the other kills too much. April 4th, 1981, a woman named Roberta Patterson calls the tip line, describes an encounter with a man who resembled the composite sketch she had seen of the trailside killer in the paper. Roberta, uh, Roberta had a hell of a memory. Some 26 years earlier, right, during that five-year stretch, we don't know much about David Carpenter. Uh, she had been out on a cruise ship, confronted a young man in his 20s named David Carpenter, who was working as a purser and creeping the shit out of her and her very young teen daughter. She recalled that he had a stutter and she had proof of his name because he had signed her daughter's book. Roberta, in addition to making a report with authorities, talked to the San Francisco Examiner on May 19th and spoke about her interaction with Carpenter all those years earlier. Said she had left San Francisco on February 14th, 1955 to go on a cruise to Japan to meet her husband. Uh, She had her 14-year-old daughter, Shelby Lynn, and her 11-year-old son, Rocky, with her. A storm forced them all to stay in close quarters and David took particular interest in Shelby. Gave her candy played games with her, showed her a lot more interest uh, than he showed Rocky. When David put his arm around Shelby, Roberta said she felt queasy and complained to the captain. She told him, I just don't like to have him around my daughter so much. She said the captain responded, well, he's just a young man. He's trying to entertain the kids. <laughs> well, yeah. The captain was technically correct. I mean, he, he's trying to fuck the kids, at least one of them. And I guess you could interpret that if you're deranged as entertainment for David, at least. Uh, David signed Shelby's autograph uh, book. She had a little book she was getting random people's signatures with. Said, to you from me, David J. Carpenter, purser, SS Fleetwood, 3155. So I doubt it was the only time he did something that creepy during that five-year stretch we didn't know, where we don't know much about him. Cutting back to 1981, weeks after her initial tip, Roberta calls again to ask if her tip is being investigated and is told it takes a long time. And good on Roberto for following up. May 2nd, 1981, 20-year-old Heather Skaggs goes missing. The same day she was supposed to meet up with a guy named David Carpenter. Just like the tip. Weird. Heather was a student working at Econo Quick Print, where David is still working as a printer. Right? He goes after a coworker this time. Carpenter was teaching people how to use computer typesetting machines. Heather lived in San Jose with her boyfriend, and David sometimes would give her a ride home in a company car. And, and I know that a guy doing that could be totally innocent, but also... If some 50-year-old dude is giving my 20-year-old daughter rides home from work, I'm swinging by the office and I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to do my best to make sure that that guy is at least a little bit fucking scared of me because I think there's a good chance that motherfucker's a creep. Uh, Heather mentioned that she wanted her own car, so David told her that he had a friend selling a car and David even offered to loan her what she needed to buy it. Right? Not weird at all. No strings will be attached to that loan. No way. Uh, Before Heather left, she gave her boyfriend, Dan Pingle, David's number, address, and time she expected to return. Her mother, Mary Jones Skaggs, later testified that David Carpenter offered to drive Helen to Santa Cruz to help her get a job at a print shop and help her buy a used car. He asked her to bring cash, and he told her not to tell anyone about the meeting. So this is unfortunate that she knew her daughter was going on a ride with a dude who asked her not to tell anyone. Uh, Mary testified that she pleaded with Heather over the phone, please don't go with Carpenter. Heather cried, said it didn't feel right, but she didn't want to pass up a job opportunity. She told Mary, don't worry. Don't worry about it, mom. Well, Mary was, Mary was worried. Poor Mary. In her defense, you know, uh, she wants to stop her daughter, but her daughter's a grown woman who can uh, do what she wants in these situations. Heather was last seen alive by someone who talked to authorities and was not named David Carpenter on May 2nd, 1991, waiting for her ride with David outside a convenience store parking lot. Dan Pingo went looking for her hours later, confronted Carpenter, who said he hadn't seen Heather that day. 
uh, he overslept. Pingle doesn't buy it. He calls the San Jose police, reports that David told Heather not to tell anybody that she was going uh, on a ride with him and to bring 400 bucks for a vehicle. He knew he had something to do with Heather's disappearance and so did her mom. This was now the second time, you know, that David Carpenter's name has been brought up in the investigation in a short, like, uh, frame of time. So the police decide to talk to him. Six days later, May 8th, David makes the, uh, same, makes the same statement to the police he made to Dan. He overslept, right? Didn't meet up with Heather that day. One of the officers who speaks with him notices that Carpenter sure does look a lot like the composite sketch from Steve Hartle's description. And uh, it seemed like he had tried to change his appearance by ditching the glasses and growing out a beard. David immediately jumps to becoming the prime suspect in the trailside killer murders now. And the police contact uh, Carpenter's parole officer, Richard Wood. Fuck yeah, bro. Dick Wood on the scene. <laughs> Dick Wood, the parole officer. How many times did dudes fresh out of prison meeting up with Dick Wood have to focus so hard on not offending him by laughing at his name? Uh, after being presented with information on Heather Skaggs' disappearance, uh, Dick Wood has a feeling that Carpenter is in fact the trailside killer. Police now lean in further into learning more about David, discover he did not show up on the California inmate records due to a technicality of being a federal inmate. And they learned that he was a sex offender, a violent one, a man who had tried to beat a woman to death with a hammer when she refused to let him fuck her, a woman he knew, just like he knew Heather, a man who had committed a lot of sex crimes and already spent a lot of years in prison. The FBI local authorities set up a surveillance van now outside Carpenter's house on Sussex Street, 36 Sussex Street, if you happen to live there and are now very creeped out. And they start following him to places he frequented. Investigators learned about his girlfriend, talked to Candy Townsend, May 14th. She told them that David had given her a ring, but the stone fell out of the setting. When asked if she had ever given him anything, she said uh, she didn't give it to him, but he had taken a gold jacket of hers. Said it went missing in late March or early April. Oh man, this is, uh, this is big. Uh, she wanted it back, but then David told her it was stolen from his car while he was at the supermarket. And she remembered thinking that was weird because he always locked his car doors. Remember, Steve Hartle described the killer as wearing a gold jacket on the day David shot him and shot and killed his girlfriend, Ellen Hansen. Investigators felt like this was the big break in the case they had been waiting for. And now they start working on obtaining a search, uh, an arrest warrant. They get it. They decide the arrest will take place the next morning. May 15th, 1981, David Carpenter, who had just turned 51 years old the week before, is arrested outside his home in Diamond Heights, San Francisco, arrested in connection with the murder of Ellen Hansen and the attempted murder of Steve Hartle, also linked to some of the other trailside killer murders and the disappearance of Heather Skaggs. Catherine Ramsland would write about the arrest, saying, They approached him carefully, speaking in soft tones, so as not to alarm him or inspire him to reach for whatever was in the bag. He seemed confused at first, but soon insisted on getting a lawyer. At this point, the agents told him he was under arrest, and he begged, please don't hurt me. Inside David's Fiat, a vehicle previously witnessed at one of his crime scenes, right? A red Fiat. Investigators find a bent tailpipe and a book about local hiking trails. Inside his home, they find more than 60 maps of hiking trails. Ramsland wrote, thus, Carpenter drove a car similar to the one described by the surviving victim, had the same optometrist as another victim. Yeah, they find that out as well. Had the right distinctive type of clothing, had a record for violent sex crimes, also suffered from explosive rages and had recently tried to change his look with a different type of frame for his glasses. In addition, several witnesses had recognized him as the man who had been in the area of an attack. The police put David in a lineup, invite numerous people who had made witness reports regarding the trailside killer to participate. Steve Hartle picks David out of the lineup despite his new beard. Six out of seven other witnesses also pick him out. 
and witnesses pick out his Fiat in a car lineup. Briefly, there is speculation that David uh, also might have been the uh, Zodiac Killer, but it was quickly determined that he had been in prison when some of the Zodiac Killer murders occurred and when that killer sent letters to the police and local media. Uh, Before moving on, how weird is this? During initial questioning with detectives who were hoping for David to tell them where the body of Heather Skaggs was, somehow ballet lessons came up. (laughs) David started bitching a bunch about his mom making him take ballet lessons. And then just got up in front of investigators and started going through various ballet positions, like doing a weird dance. Just out of nowhere, this dude starts dancing for the detectives. Uh, And as he danced, he talked and he did not stutter. David's arraignment takes place inside the Santa Cruz County Jail, May 18th, 1981, formally charged with murder and attempted murder. While David is in jail, the police continue the search for Anna Kelly uh, Menjabar. No evidence of foul play in her disappearance, but, you know, because of her connection to David, the police now, of course, assume that something fucking terrible has happened to her. May 24th, 1981, just a few days later, hikers in the Santa Cruz Mountains come across a badly decomposed body in Big Basin State Park. The following day, authorities confirm it's the body of Heather Skaggs. She's identified by dental records. She died of a single 38 caliber gunshot wound to the face at close range. All of her clothing is gone and one of her earrings is missing, similar to an earlier crime scene, right? Little serial killer trophies, perhaps. Authorities assume that she had been raped before being killed. A high concentration of seminal fluid was found in Heather's body. The pathologist who did her autopsy believed that sperm was placed in her body within an hour of the gunshot wound. The condition of her body was consistent with being shot from above while lying on ground on the ground after intercourse. Forensic analysis of the semen was inconclusive. May 27th, David is charged with the murder of Heather Skaggs. Testing of the bullet that killed Heather linked him to the crime. By May 27th, the Syracuse Herald Journal noted that Marin County DA Jerry Herman was going to file charges against David in five more murders linked to his gun through ballistics. Herman would not file charges in the Barbara Schwartz or Etta Kane cases due to lack of evidence. Barbara was stabbed with a knife and there were no usable fingerprints found on her body. Etta was shot with a different type of gun that had still not been found. Authorities strongly suspected David in these attacks, but just, you know, didn't have the evidence. Nearly three weeks later, June 14th, 1981, skeletal remains are found near Castle Rock State Park by some hikers. The hikers found a jawbone, took it to their home before calling Santa Clara County Sheriff's deputies uh, who notified Santa Cruz County. Sheriff's deputies and explorer scouts searched the area, found a skull, half of a skeleton, and several pieces of clothing. And those remains would be identified as the missing Anna Kelly Menjivar. She had disappeared roughly six months earlier, back on December, December 28th, 1980, that 17-year-old who worked at the bank. Uh, this, uh, the one that, you know, at least one customer worried about David's fixation with her. The one who David had taken to his job, given her free keychains and ceramic dolls. Due to decomposition, Anna's cause of death could not be established, and there wasn't much evidence against Carpenter to build a case. But again, he for sure fucking killed her, likely after raping her as well. July 31st, 1981, David Carpenter charged with five murders in Marin County. Also charged with two counts of forcible rape, one count of attempted rape with 13 special circumstances. David's first of two big trials uh, for the Santa Cruz charges starts on October 11th, 1983 in the L.A. Superior Court. He had been granted a change of venue due to the media exposure in the area where he killed regarding the trailside killer murders. Uh, The trial ended uh, ended up being unique because the judge seated two juries at the same time. One for the guilt phase, one for the penalty phase. Uh, District Attorney Art Danner explained, this will mean that the entire guilty phase of the trial will not have to be retried at the penalty phase if the jury finds the defendant guilty. 
It will literally save thousands of dollars and an enormous amount of time in the presentation of the case. And I'm not sure why that has not happened uh, more often. I don't know. Tried to figure it out and couldn't. Uh, April 5th, 1984, the two juries impaneled at the same time. Santa Cruz trial officially gets started May 23rd, 1984. In his opening statement, District Attorney Art Danner described how the murders of Ellen and Heather were committed and noted that investigators discovered that one of David's friends bought a 38 caliber revolver for him in the fall of 1980. Stephen Hartle testified on May 24th about surviving his attack. Steve described his attacker as clean-shaven. Conveniently, uh, when David was arrested, right, he had uh, grown out his beard. As discussed earlier, witnesses viewed David in a lineup with other bearded participants. Per court order, David was clean-shaven at trial, and Stephen positively, positively identified him in the lineup and in court. The young girl who saw the red Fiat at the crime scene had identified somebody else in the lineup. Remember that David had a beard at the time, but now correctly identifies David in court. Kenneth Fritz and the Morses, the people who saw David and helped Steve Hartle, uh, could not identify anyone in the lineup, again, likely due to David changing up his appearance, but now correctly identify David in court. Additionally, Steve, the Morses, and the Fritzes described the killer as wearing a gold jacket and a blue or green baseball cap. And this gold jacket, oh man, it's become a, a central theme of the trial and actually some other clothing. Candy Townsend, David's former girlfriend, testifies that David owned a green baseball cap, also testified that she once worked at a bar in Billings, Montana, And that's where she got a gold jacket with Ollie written on the front. And on the back was Western Bar Olympic Drinking Team, Billings, Montana. Only 20 of those jackets were ever made. Candy didn't wear the jacket. David told her he was wearing it. And she said she last saw it in early April of 1981 in one of David's cars. And that David told her it had been stolen after that. And the jacket never recovered. A San Francisco police officer who gave David a traffic citation on March 7th, 1981, testified he was wearing a yellow windbreaker with a logo for either Coors or Olympia beer on it. Uh, Leland Fritz testified that the back of the suspect's jacket said Olympic or Olympia, and either beer drinking champion or team. He was also sure that the word Montana was underneath it, right? Dude could not have picked a worse jacket to commit murders while wearing. Like he might as well have worn a jacket with a fucking neon sign sewn into the back that flashed and said, I'm David Carpenter and I rape and kill women. When Leland was shown a picture of a similar jacket, he said it had the exact same fancy lettering as the jacket worn by the killer. Uh, Various witnesses testified that the shooter was wearing tennis shoes. Criminalists took plaster casts and photos of shoe tracks found at the crime scene. The prosecution was able to prove that the same or that the day before shooting Ellen Hansen and Steve Hartle, David had bought a pair of Nikes with an identical pattern and exact right size for the tracks. And then those shoes uh, weirdly disappeared. Ballistics established that a 38 caliber Rossi revolver was used to shoot Heather, Ellen, and Stephen. Cynthia Moreland, Richard Stowers, shot in the head with a 38 caliber Rossi revolver used in the Santa Cruz County crimes. Uh, Molly Purnell, David's friend, now testified that she bought that gun in the fall of 1980. She testified under a grant of immunity that she purchased the gun at David's request and gave it to him. So, little bit incriminating, just a tiny bit. When she was first questioned after David's arrest, she said the gun was stolen Now she testified that David had told her to say that if anything happened. Two additional witnesses testified that David showed them a similar gun in late 1980 and early 1981. In July of 1981, that gun was found buried under some broken asphalt in a vacant lot in San Francisco. Witness Shane Williams led police to the gun. David gave him and his wife Karen the gun, he said, May 13th. Williams then used it in a bank robbery and ditched it in San Francisco after David was arrested. 
after he was arrested, a paper bag with an unex- uh, unexpended 38 caliber bullet was found in David's Chevy station wagon. And investigators determined that he also owned a red Fiat. And that the day after the Hartle Hansen shooting, David drove that Fiat to an acquaintance's house in Marin County, borrowed her car, left the Fiat there for four days, even though it ran just fine. It was almost like he didn't want to be linked to that car for a little while. Uh, some DNA evidence, even though DNA evidence being used, uh, you know, still a very new thing, not nearly as impactful as it is now, uh, also was presented at trial. Ann Alderson was found clothed, but sperm was found in her vagina. A semen stain found on her underwear was of a type consistent with 6 to 8% of the population, which included David Carpenter. I mean, had they had better DNA testing available back then, it would have certainly been an exact match. The defense's case uh, only took one day to present because they had a fucking shitty case. So much evidence against David. Uh, Defense attorney Larry Bigham admitted that, yeah, David killed Helen and Heather, but I fucking love this so much. He argued that David should not be convicted of first degree murder because he was, quote, a mental mess. (laughs) That phrase is the best. Uh, So much better than arguing that he's insane. Your Honor. Did my client kill some of these people? Yeah, of course he did. He's a mess. He's a mental mess. Look at him. Look how confused he looks. He barely knows I'm talking about him right now. Look at his dumb lopsided monster face. Dude's a fucking mess. If you could see inside his head right now, there's no way you would see a human brain. You'd probably see, I don't know, a couple squirrels fighting over a nut. Maybe a little tiny clown dicking around with a yo-yo. Or like maybe there's a little garbage can in there with a bunch of crumpled up pieces of paper inside. And when you uncrumple the papers, there would just be weird or creepy ass statements written on them like gold jackets are good for raping or mommy loves the ballet boy or keychains get you puss. <laughs> Larry also admitted that David shot Stephen Hartle and also that he uh, tried to rape Ellen. The defense sought to cast doubt on whether or not David lay in wait for Ellen and raped Heather Skaggs though, both of which would be special circumstances that would qualify him for the death penalty. The defense also had forensic uh, serologist Brian Raxel testify that semen found in Heather's body, it might have come from a boyfriend. Before resting, the defense also tossed out the so-called shrub slut theory. What if, defense attorney Larry Bigham pondered, what if David, yeah, he killed some women out in the woods, but in self-defense? What if sexually insatiable women were hiding out in the woods waiting for innocent hikers like David to walk by and they would pounce on those guys and demand sexual satisfaction? What if David did carry a gun to protect himself from dangerous shrub sluts? And of course, that's nonsense. Uh, that's a callback to episode 207, The Vampire of Sacramento, serial killer Richard Chase. If you're like, what the fuck is happening right now? Uh, July 6, 1984, David Carpenter convicted of two counts of first degree murder, attempted murder, and uh, I sorry, I just really threw my notes around. Uh, attempted murder, rape, and attempted rape. The jury found him guilty of three special circumstances that did qualify him for the death penalty as well. Multiple murders, murder during a rape, and murder while lying in wait. Uh, The penalty phase of the trial was set to begin in August. DA Art Danner told the jury, we thought all along that if there's any case appropriate for the death penalty, this is it. Old Larry Bigham said he would try to save David from the death penalty by explaining his background, telling the court, in no way can I excuse his crimes but we will certainly try to explain them. August 15th, Larry Bigham tells the jury that David was damned at a young age due to his childhood. He was beaten by his parents, ridiculed by his classmates, and didn't receive love, affection, or praise. But again, did he really suffer through a terrible childhood at home with his parents? Or was he just a fucking freak? Uh, Friends and teachers testified about David's childhood. His adult children testified about their contact with him and their love for him. 
Prison employees spoke about David's good behavior. An expert witness testified about the effects of child abuse. And a second expert, Dr. Dipshit, I assume, testified about stuttering and its effects on David. Psychologist Dr. William Pierce also testified, said that David suffers from a severe and long-standing emotional disturbance amounting to a personality disorder, stemming from emotional neglect and abuse in his childhood, which contributed to his criminal behavior. Dr. Craig Haney, a psychologist, testified that penal and public institutions failed to provide the necessary treatment for David, which contributed to his criminal behavior. I'll blame the system. How fucking weak in this case. Right, this dude was uh, saying he was fucking taking little girls' fucking pants off uh, by the age of eight, that by the age of 18, he'd, what, raped uh, somewhere close to 50 fucking women? No, he just fucking loved to rape. I don't know why, but it wasn't the system's fault. Uh, during the penalty phase of the prosecution, the or excuse me, during the penalty phase, the prosecution presented evidence of David's other crimes and convictions, including the January and February 1970 crime spree. September 18th, 1984, NYU professor of psychiatry, Thomas Sass, testified for the prosecution. Sass was called as a rebuttal witness to the defense's argument that David's actions were influenced by a personality disorder stemming from his childhood. And Sass said, and I like this, it is meaningless to contend that a personality disorder can cause criminal conduct. Sass testified that some of Carpenter's alleged statements helped him form the opinion that David exercised free choice. For example, the girlfriend of an inmate who befriended David in prison said that David told her in May of 1981 to get away with murder is the ultimate challenge. He also allegedly told her there's nothing like the power of a gun to get you what you want. Yeah, he knew exactly what he was doing. In that respect, his mind was not a mess at all. It was very clear. He wanted to rape and he wanted to get away with rape. And that's why he did what he did. October 5th, 1984, jurors vote for the death penalty after seven days of deliberation. On November 16th, David is officially sentenced to death by the judge. January 31st of the following year, 1985, David's new public defender, Frank Cox, argues that he should not have to stand trial now for the Marin County charges because the judge had already convicted him of five murders in the Santa Cruz trial. At the end of the Santa Cruz trial, the judge noted there was overwhelming proof that David committed the Marin murders, and he imposed not one but two death sentences upon him. Testimony about the Marin murders was also used to show the aggravated circumstances to justify the death penalties. Frank Cox now argued that another trial would amount to double jeopardy. Well, August 19th, 1985, Channel uh, 2 Local News airs an exclusive interview between David and anchor Elaine Coral now. First time he's uh, speaking publicly. The interview taped on July 19th, aired in three parts. In part one, David said, I've said from the very start that I am not the trailside killer. By the way, he still maintains innocence. He said, I've said before that they knew before my arrest that I had not killed Heather Skaggs. They knew for sure. They knew positively once they got the bullet from Heather Skaggs' head that I was not the trailside killer. By this time, they said I had killed everybody that had been killed in the last five or 10 years in Northern California. And now they're forced to cover up. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's the fucking victim. Part two, David talked about his childhood saying, I used to go to school with black and blue marks day after day after day. If you were talking about a year's time, I wouldn't be talking about how many times I got beaten. I'd be talking about how many times I didn't get beaten. If you're talking about 365 days, I'd be beaten 350 to 355 days a year. I get beaten every day. Get the fuck out of here. This claim does not match up with his best friend from childhood's claim at all. Or with the claims of other friends and teachers, you know, when he was in school, testimony of siblings. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, Despite the pleas of public defender Frank Cox on September 13th, 1986, David granted another change of venue and his second trial is moved to San Diego. So he is going to go on trial again. And it did not slip past me that we have a Dick Wood 
and a Frank Cox in this episode. And the Frank sometimes is used to describe a hot dog or a penis. So you can make an argument that it's the most penis-like name-heavy episode. <laughs> we have two guys who have first and last names related to dicks. Thank you, Nimrod. And thank you, Lucifina. I'm sure you both had a hand in that. Uh, David's Marin County trial starts with the opening statements, January 5th, 1988. Prosecutors argue that David stalked five hikers in Marin County and murdered them. This time, instead of admitting David was a killer, the defense argued that David, he was not at the crime scenes. The prosecution presented mostly the same evidence as the first trial. Prosecutors presented evidence of the murder of Ellen Hansen and the attempted murder of Stephen Hartle, which were the subject of the previous trial. Prosecution linked David to these crimes by showing that the same person committed the Santa Cruz and Marin County crimes. Steve Hartle testifies a second time, January 6th, 1988. Right? How crazy that he had to look at this fucker that killed his girlfriend and almost killed him again. Two trials. Uh, poor bastard. Uh, March 15th, 1988, criminalist Charles Morton testifies for the defense that castings of shoe prints from the Hansen and Hartle crime scene don't match tracks from the type of shoes prosecutors claimed David was wearing at the time. The Nike shoe purchased by the police for comparison could not have left the shoe prints found at the Hartle Hansen crime scene because the shoe prints had 28 ridges in one region, but the comparison shoe had 29 ridges. Uh, the prosecution presented rebuttal evidence then that showed that the number of ridges on Nike shoes vary slightly, even on shoes the same size. Although the shoes that the police bought for comparison could not have made the shoe prints on uh, at the crime scene, another pair of those shoes in that same size definitely could have. So the defense, they're just grasping at straws with this shit. Uh, during the second trial, David's defense questioned the ability of one witness to observe the shooter in his car. Uh, they impeached the testimony of another witness who connected him to the murder weapon. Several witnesses also challenged the testimony of uh, Molly Purnell, the woman who bought the 38 caliber gun for David. Defense argued that the 38 caliber bullet found in the paper bag did not come from Carpenter's car. Defense also presented an expert witness who claimed that the serological analysis of the semen stain on Ann Alderson's underwear was, quote, unreliable. The defense also presented evidence suggesting that a killer or that the killer wore a different jacket than the one described. March 22nd, 1988, witness uh, Catherine Mahler told the jury that she encountered a man while she was jogging to the park in Santa Cruz County, March 29th, 1981, and he was not David Carpenter. And he was wearing a yellow windbreaker, similar to the jacket worn by the person who killed Ellen Hansen. Can you imagine actually just randomly that fucking two people had those Billings Montana bar jackets? Like, what if David didn't kill these people and another dude wearing that same fucking weird jacket so many miles away was also killing me, who kind of looked like him. Uh, but her description of the man that she saw differed from Hartle and others who identified David. Mahler didn't report what she saw until 50 months later because she didn't want to get involved, she said, until she heard Ellen's mother speaking at a handgun control rally. Uh, another witness testified she saw the man the morning before the shooting. He did not look like Carpenter. Third witness testified she saw a man wearing a jacket similar to the description of the gunman. Shortly before 5 p.m., March 19th, 1981, and he didn't look like Carpenter. Uh, and he was seen near the, the shooting. Two more witnesses testified that they saw the man near the crime scene the day before the shooting, and their description was somewhat inconsistent with Carpenter. One witness said the man was unshaven with a day or two of beard growth. In court, one of the witnesses said Carpenter looked similar to that guy. Uh, another witness positively identified Carpenter as the man of the trail, at the tra- uh, on the trail. April 5th, 1988, David Carpenter now gives testimony himself. Uh, he will do this for seven days. Oh, fuck. Making a big push here. But even if he's found not guilty, he's already got a double death sentence hung on him. On the fifth, David is questioned by his attorney, Stephen Berlin, about how he dealt with his stutter. 
David testifies that he only stuttered when talking in a normal voice, saying, if I whisper, I don't stutter. If I sing, I don't stutter. If I get mad and talk like this, I will not stutter. So he's putting on a real performance here. David testifies that he was miles away from the various crime scenes, but uh, in his alibis, his witnesses are his parents. And this is going to be problematic. Uh, David's father died four years earlier in 1984. And at the time of the second trial, his mother was suffering from Alzheimer's and had vision problems. So not the best alibi witnesses. One is dead and the other is half blind and can't remember who David is half the time. David claimed he had receipts and other documents that would prove he was doing uh, what he was doing in case his parole officer ever asked. And he said that on some of the dates of his alleged crimes, like on October 11th, 1980, when Richard Stowers and Cynthia Moreland were shot and killed in the Point Reyes National Seashore Park, he took his father shopping, excuse me, and took his mom to a foot clinic. And he produced documents from the clinic. Uh, they left around 11 to 1130 a.m., did some more shopping, went to a garden supply store, had an argument over what size of a pot to buy, arrived home about 440, uh, 5.45 p.m. He said that on October 13th, 1980, when murder victim Ann Alderson was last seen alive, or Alderson, before her body turned up in the Mount Tamalpais State Park, he worked at Gems of the Golden West until 5.30 to 6 p.m., then went home. One of David's employers also testified he was working with her at Gems of the Golden West October 13th until after 4.30 p.m., possibly up to 5.30 or 6 p.m. November 28th, 1980, when Shauna May and Diane O'Connell were gunned down in the Point Reyes National Seashore Park, David claimed he was at his parents' house fixing a broken toilet. He said he spent most of the day on March 29th, 1981, when Ellen Hansen and Steve Hartle were attacked and Ellen was killed, with four men whose real names he couldn't remember. And he said they discussed his idea for a business for adult keychains. <laughs> and uh, before moving forward, we got to dig into this claim for, uh, for a second. Adult keychains. Why would you have to qualify a keychain as being adult? I have to assume that an adult keychain would have something sexual about it, right? Like a picture of a naked lady or a sex toy. Uh, it sounds like something that would be sold in the Suck Versus favorite sex toy shop, Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium. Howdy, partners and ponies. This here's your good buddy, Tom Anderson, a.k.a. Captain Whiskerhorn. Your trusted source of sexy bits, bridles, harnesses, halters, hooves, masks, anal plug tails, and more for the Quad State area for the past 20 years. As you know, we do not just specialize in pony play gear. All kinks are welcome and provided for here. And we're not above slinging some novelty items. Coming this week, reference this commercial on time so I can get 30% off any of our new Carpenters adult keychains. We got keychains featuring incredibly explicit sexual photos of some of your favorite adult film stars in very graphic positions. See your date's eyes light up when you turn over the ignition with a keychain featuring a laminated photo of an oiled-up Bella Danger being aggressively anally penetrated. Or maybe you'd like your keychain to double as a vibrating dildo. Get your lady or prostate motor revved up before or after revving up your hot rod engine. Or just unclick the detachable keychain vibrating dildo to rev up both engines simultaneously. We got keychain butt plugs, keychain lube dispensers, keychain numbing cream dispensers, keychain desensitizing sprays. We got keychain cock rings. Never lose your keys again. When you're not driving, the hell with put them in your pocket. Hook them around your dingley. We got keychain vibrating eggs. Never lose your keys again. When you're not driving, stick them up your hoo-ha. There's only room for one sexual fetish superstore in the Quad State area, and that store is Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop, and Saddlery. And now we have Carpenter's Adult Keychains. Hiya, Sasparilla! Away! All right, uh, but seriously, uh, what else would those things be? 
I mean, bank records uh, also showed that David's father's credit card was used to make a purchase at one time, uh, or excuse me, at one of the shopping locations, October 11th, 1980. And the proprietor, not Captain Whiskerhorn, uh, estimated that the purchase occurred around 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. David admitting to wearing the Montana jacket, but denied telling his girlfriend it was stolen. He believed his girlfriend got lost uh, or lost it one night when she got drunk. He also admitted to buying a pair of Nikes day before the shooting. Uh, he denied ever having the 38 caliber Rossi revolver that Molly Purnell said she purchased for him. April 22nd, 1988, document examiner Sandra Homewood fucking destroys everything he's just done. <laughs> his alibis are fucking nonsense. Uh, she testifies that the documents used to support his alibis had been definitely altered. Whoops. Kind of fucks up the best part of his defense. She testified that someone intentionally altered the dates on documents used to show that David was at the foot clinic, right? In uh, October, 1980, uh, the, there was, yeah, just numbers fucking moved around. Zero becomes a one. And, uh, you know, he did that with uh, other documents as well. So feeling desperate before resting, the defense now tries to shift blame to my dad. Where was my dad? Daniel Neal Cummins. Thanks for giving me a different uh, middle name. So I'm not a junior. Between August 19th, 1979 and May 2nd, 1981. Well, the jury was told nobody knows for sure. And that's true. No one knows for sure where he was all those days. Maybe Anchorage, Alaska. Maybe not. He was definitely in peak condition physically in his late 20s. Very comfortable with the outdoors. Right? He worked as a follower on a logging crew for a couple years. Not that many years earlier. His hands real strong from a lot of chainsaw and carpenter work. Plenty strong enough to be grabbing people. He was, and he still is, very handy with firearms. Did David Carpenter suddenly escalate his criminal behavior between 1979 and 1981? Or did my dad show up in the Bay Area with a boner and a taste for blood? I'll stop with jokes about my dad. But what if David did do all that he was charged with but couldn't help it because he was possessed by the ghost of Elizabethan England's worst serial killer, maybe in a different part of the multiverse where my thoughts are real? Perhaps. It was another reincarnation of the most demonic, deviant, diabolical soul ever to terrorize the nights of every young woman living in London and Stratford-upon-Avon, Billy Shakes. Perhaps Shakespeare never created any truly evil villains for his plays because he was one himself and didn't want to tip his hand that far. The literary world's most horrific serial killer. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely future victims okay i'll really stop now now that i probably already lost the interest of every new listener may 10th 1988 david is convicted again that piece of shit and total waste of taxpayer money was convicted of all charges in marin county five counts of first degree murder two counts of rape one count of attempted rape again the jury found special circumstances for multiple murder and rape murder during another penalty phase prosecution presents similar evidence as the first trial also presents evidence of an altercation that occurred on December 23rd, 1980, where David pulled out a gun, threatened to kill someone, something we didn't even mention previously, right? How much other shit did he do that never made it into source material? Prosecution showed that the same 38 caliber gun was used during the murder of Heather Skaggs, right? So he was seen holding this gun. Defense presented mitigating evidence about David's mental state, just like they did at the last trial, right? His mind's a mess. He's a, he's a mental mess. He didn't know what he was doing. Uh, June 9th, 1988, a psychologist testifies for the defense that David committed the murders during a psychotic state triggered by resistance on the victim's part to his sexual advances. Psychologist added, I don't think he planned to murder. I think he planned to rape. And if you really think about it, that's some pretty fucked up testimony, right? It's like, uh, he, he didn't want to murder. 
he, he only wanted to rape. If those women would have just let him rape them, we wouldn't be here today. I mean, in a way, it's kind of their fault, really. Uh, David's son, Michael, testified during the penalty phase of the second trial saying, David has always been real good to me. If I needed money or help, he's always been real good to try to work things out, either himself or through my grandparents. In a crisis, he's usually been there or been around to get a hold of. That's, a, that's some pretty uh, <laughs> tepid endorsement there. Like, you, you know, a kid is really close with their dad when they call them by their first name instead of, you know, by dad or the equivalent. And, and I like uh, usually. He's usually, you know, I guess he said he's always been pretty good, uh, but in a crisis, he's usually been there or been around to get a hold of. Okay. Uh, David's daughter, Gabrielle, said that she maintained, quote, a nice relationship with her father. Uh-huh. Dr. Ernest Bryant, a neuropsychologist, stated that David had a mixed personality disorder with borderline narcissistic and antisocial features. Dr. Craig Haney, again, testified that David's early institutionalization and juvenile facilities worsened a pre-existing psychological problems or worsened, you know, several institutions failed to adequately treat these problems and David became dependent on institutional structure and procedure for adequate psychological adjustment. Again, it's a systems problem that this guy was born a fucking psychopath. Uh, June 27th, 1988, the jury once again recommends a death penalty. David formally sentenced to death, uh, again, July 19th, 1988, and now he has three death sentences, technically. Uh, however, a year later, June 14th, 1989, a San Diego judge voids David's second trial because the jury forewoman knew that he had already been sentenced to death for murders in Santa Cruz County. After David was convicted, an investigator for the public defender's office looked into a tip that jury forewoman Barbara Durham revealed knowledge of David's earlier crimes March 26, 1988, when the trial was in progress. She was at a restaurant with two acquaintances and told them, I'm not supposed to know this, but the defendant has been convicted of doing the same thing in another county and has been sentenced to death. One of the acquaintances told uh, his attorney about this and the attorney informed David's lawyers. Barbara and her husband denied that she'd ever made that statement. Fucking Barb! Uh, but also, who cares in this case, right? He's already on death row and will remain on death row. Uh, March 6, 1995, the California Supreme Court refused to give David a new trial and the court believed it was impossible to keep secrets in these kind of cases and the juror's knowledge had not unduly biased the entire jury. So April 28, 1997, the California Supreme, Kate, uh, Supreme Court upholds his third death penalty in that Santa Cruz case. He's still in some kind of triple death penalty situation. How great in a case like that if they had to try and kill him three times, right? Like shock him until his heart stops in the electric chair, but then get out the paddles and bring him back, nurse him back to full strength, but then just immediately execute him again, right? Maybe give him another last meal. Uh, and then, you know, like a, like a barely lethal injection with his, when his heart stops, inject him with some kind of antidote, bring him back, nurse him back to health, another last meal, then firing squad. Or better yet, have all that happen real quick. No nursing him back to health between executions. Just all in the same day. Shock him, bring him back. You want a snack? You know, give him a snack or not a snack. Then, you know, inject him. Then bring him back. Would you like a fruit roll-up or something? Then firing squad. What a fucking roller coaster of a day. Uh, sadly, because of California's moratorium on executions, he's not going to even be executed one time. February 23rd, 2010, uh, DNA evidence links David Carpenter to, an, to another murder that he had been suspected of but not found guilty of. Inspector Joe Toomey of the cold case unit announces that the crime lab technicians recovered unspecified DNA evidence in December of 2009. In January 2010, they learned it matched a sample from David Carpenter. Crime lab technicians confirmed that a sample obtained from David, February 3rd, matched DNA from the murder of Mary Frances Bennett. 
That was the 23-year-old who went out for a trail run, never came back on October 21st, 1979. The girl who was stabbed 25 times and buried in a shallow grave in Lincoln Park. Uh, At the time, prosecutors had decided, you know, had not decided, excuse me, whether or not to file charges against Carpenter. Toomey said that Mary Francis's siblings still lived in Montana. They were relieved, but also surprised to receive the news. Mary's parents had passed away. Uh, Joseph Bennett, one of her brothers, said they had always assumed that Carpenter was responsible and was surprised that the police followed up on the case due to time and expense. And that will take us out of this timeline, but don't go anywhere. Uh, We will catch up a bit more with David, who is still alive very, very soon. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Before uh, I give a little brief recap, a quick word from the Suck versus premier true crime expert, store detective, Sonny Hollister. Cheesecake Factory store detective Sonny Hollister here again, Meat Sacks. It's a shame that law enforcement working these murders in the Bay Area didn't think to send in some ace store detectives to work the park beats where the trailside killer was doing what he did worst. We store detectives were a different breed, particularly adept at anticipating crimes before they occur. Used to work in a very specific beat day after day, looking for unusual details. A handful of store detectives work in the three primary locations where the trailside killer did his hunting. He's as good as caught a year earlier than he was, if not earlier. I would address him like a tourist, a lone dude in some cargo shorts and a Stetson Explorer hat who liked to take a lot of pictures. A guy not afraid to wander off the trail and get out into the brush. A guy like that could easily strike up a conversation with other lone wolves in the park. We come across like birds of a feather, except this bird is a hawk. And David Carpenter, he is a dove, my friend. Well, maybe a woodpecker, but certainly not a hawk. He's a part-time predator, only the man, when he's the man with the gun and you ain't. But I have a gun, too. I mean, not right now, because it makes factory management nervous, and they've said if I bring it to work again, I'll be immediately fired. But at home, I do. And well, you get it. I would have walked those trails from sunup to sundown. I get in over three miles worth of steps a day in the mall. These legs are ready for trails. And these fingers, they're not just made for stopping flatware shrinkage. They're made for taking out homicidal maniacs. Not one murder so far in any cheesecake factory beat I've worked. And I aim to keep it that way. I would have arrested David Carpenter faster than you can say chili crunch shrimp pasta or Sheila's chicken and avocado salad. Until next time, you keep listening to True Crime and I'll keep stopping it. Stay sunny, everyone. Uh, That was weird that uh, uh, Sonny uh, Hollister, who who is definitely a different person, uh, took on my mush mouth for a second. Uh, maybe not a bad idea, right? The way Sonny talks, a good store detective uh, could stop any crime. Okay, my recap. David Joseph Carpenter. What a fucking monster. A serial killer and rapist suspected of at least 10 murders on hiking trails in state parks near San Francisco. Convicted of seven murders, an attempted murder, several counts of rape. Almost certainly committed more murders than that. And uh, many other crimes. Crimes, uh, you know, uh, the, he was committed for when he was the trailside killer. Not even the first sexually violent crimes he did commit. He spent long periods in prison. Twice, you know, for uh, sexual violence as an adult. And then there was all the uh, juvenile facilities he was bouncing in and out of where he committed, you know, numerous sex crimes before he was 18. Carpenter's MO for his trailside murders was to use a handgun to shoot his victims, typically. Seven victims shot with a 38 caliber handgun. One suspected victim shot with a 44 caliber handgun. Also committed uh, killings, though, with uh, 
you know, strangling, knives, thought that the murders committed during his final crime spree were his first killings, that he only started killing because he was obsessed with rape and didn't want to go back to prison for committing more rapes. And a dead person can't testify against you. David was the type of serial killer that frightens the most people, I think, right? A guy who didn't target a specific population in the sense of, you know, only going after hitchhikers or sex workers. He went after everyone from a, a woman whose vehicle he ran into in a car accident to a teller he found cute at the bank, to a friend of his and his wife's, uh, to women just going out for a run or a hike in the park. And men not safe either, right? If you were a guy who happened to be with a woman that he wanted to rape out in the woods, well, he shot you too. In that sense, he was a guy who could kill anyone who chose to go out for a hike. Only thing scarier than that type of killer to me is maybe like the kind uh, of killer like uh, John Allen Muhammad, right? One of the DC snipers who along with Lee Boyd Malvo just shot at anyone out and about in the DC area. Or maybe the, uh, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, right? A dude breaking into the homes of strangers and attacking them. With killers like that, it feels like, you know, even if you're not engaged in any kind of risky behavior, you know, you're not getting into uh, a stranger's car for sex work or hitchhiking out alone somewhere, you are still not safe. They can still get you when you're in your bed at home or you're out on a trail doing something healthy for yourself. Right? Thank God killers like this are exceedingly rare. I'd say that this episode was a good reminder to always be on guard when you're out on some trail, but but really like, fuck that. Like, relax when you're out on a hike. If you're always worried about a fucking murderer, that is not a good way to live. I mean, sure, be aware of who's around you, and if someone creeps you out, trust your gut and leave, cry for help, etc. But also, don't let some evolutionary fucking mistake like David Carpenter change the way you enjoy your life. Odds are, you could hike every single day from now until the day you die in any park in the nation and be just fine. I mean, maybe don't hike, you know, naked in the middle of the night alone with I dare you to catch me, fuck me and kill me sign, you know, on your fucking back or something. But even then, probably more likely to be arrested and placed in a psychiatric center for an involuntary 72 hour hold or something than murdered. There are lessons with a lot of these tales and there were some here today, but also sometimes shit just happens. Shit you can't prepare for, you know, shit you shouldn't waste a lot of mental energy worrying about. Sometimes terrible things just occur. Uh, statistically, most of the time, they don't though. So take comfort, meet Zach, and be glad this fucker and so many others like him have ended up where they belong in prison or in the ground. Time now for our takeaways where we'll learn uh, a little bit more about Dave Carpenter. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, David Carpenter, also known as the Trailside Killer, got his nickname because he targeted hikers along California park trails for two years. Typically, David targeted women who were hiking alone, but two of his victims were men who were out hiking with female partners. David targeted victims primarily based on opportunity. He attacked quickly, sometimes raping, then shooting his victims in the head before fleeing. It's believed that he killed two women who were strangers to each other because one of them witnessed him committing a murder or rape. There were several witnesses who saw him, but their descriptions were inconsistent, which along with a mistake in prison records potentially delayed his arrest. Number two, David's history of violence went back to his teenage years. In 1947, he was sentenced to the California Youth Authority for sexually abusing two children. 1950, arrested for rape. 1960, brutally attacked his acquaintance, Lois Renna. Uh, likely would have been the first murder victim if not for the intervention of a military police officer. And there were other arrests before, right? Uh, months after his release from prison for his assault on Lois and the military policeman who intervened in her attack. David committed a crime spree involving robbery, rape, and assault against women. Uh, sadly, the trailside killings could have been prevented if David had received a harsher sentence, hopefully life, for earlier repeat offenses. 
Number three, David Carpenter experienced significant abuse or bullying or, or bullying during his childhood, which influenced his later actions. But who abused him is very much up for debate. Some sources say mom. Other sources say dad. Uh, still other sources say neither parent. But that David was abused mostly by kids at school and around the neighborhood. And it seems like he may have invited quite a bit of that abuse, uh, you know, onto himself with fucking creepy and strange behavior. Number four, November 28th, 1984, trailside killer victims found in the same place the same day. Point Reyes National Seashore Park. Two victims, Shauna May and Diane O'Connell, killed earlier that day. The other two, Cynthia Moreland and Rick Stowers, killed back in October and been missing for more than a month. Searchers who were looking for Sean and Diane, who were complete, who were complete strangers to each other, but both both reported missing by friends, found Rick and Cindy first, then made the horrifying discovery of two more bodies. All these victims killed with a 38 caliber gun, later linked to David Carpenter. And now number five, new info, elderly inmates on death row. Uh, David Carpenter is 93 years old as I record this. One of the oldest people on death row in the entire U.S., if not the oldest. I couldn't find out for sure who is the oldest current inmate out of any state on death row. Uh, Definitely the oldest man on California's death row. In 2021, the website The Crime Report published an article featuring a snail mail interview with David. He had spent 36 years on death row by that point. And he wrote that he wakes up early in the morning to exercise despite arthritis, then eats breakfast and is able to go outside three days a week. He goes to church once a month, which is one of the few ways he can get out of his cell besides medical appointments and visits with friends and family. He spends most of his time in his cell, living alone. Uh, He writes, I control my lights. I have my 15-inch color television. I can go to sleep when I want to at night, take a nap during the day, and write letters and read when I want to. I have the freedom in a single cell I would not have in a two-man cell. Well, that's just fucking great for that piece of shit. Uh, 2019, the Death Penalty Information Center reported there were 574 death row inmates aged 60 and older. According to the National Institute of Corrections, prisons spend twice as much on elderly prisoners as they do on younger prisoners. Elderly inmates cost $60,000 to $70,000 annually, mostly due to medical needs. Demographic trends suggest that the over 50 population on death row will increase. And death rows are, quote, increasingly transformed into high-cost homes for senior citizens. I had never thought of that before. Uh, Yet another issue with the aging death row population is dealing with prisoners who have dementia or other medical conditions that come with old age. The crime report uh, report wrote in their article, and as more states reject or sidestep capital punishment, the issue of what to do with aging prisoners on death row presents a dilemma with moral, constitutional, and economic dimensions. Some argue that keeping elderly people who are sick or have dementia incarcerated is cruel and unusual punishment. Well, you know, we could always, uh, you know, fucking kill them if it's too cruel to keep them locked up. Uh, David wrote, in a way, being in my cell on death row is like someone in the military being restricted to base. You don't dwell on what you don't have. You focus on what you do have. And in this way, stay as positive as you can be. Well, I hope, 93 years old or not, that he doesn't stay too positive. He didn't treat victims with any positivity. Dude was a fucking blight upon humanity since he was, what, at least seven, eight years old? How fucked that that guy is still alive and apparently healthy at 93. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The trailside killer, serial killer, David Carpenter has been sucked. Uh, Thank you again to the team here. Thank you to producer Olivia Lee for initial research today and to the uh, uh, art warlock. Oh, no. Is the art is the suck ranger, Tyler C., recording and editing this episode. Uh, So you can watch it on YouTube in addition to listening. And also, watch my new special, Trying to Get Better on YouTube if you haven't. 
And uh, thanks to all the love for the special in the private Facebook group, uh, three out of five stars and on the Time Suck Discord and in other private Facebook groups and other places online. Next week on Time Suck, we're going to go sci-fi. Well, actually, we're going to go sci-fact, but it might feel like sci-fi. What is the biggest thing you can think of? The biggest animal is a blue whale. General Sherman tree, world's tallest tree, reaches 275 feet, more than 36 feet wide. Dubai Mall, world's largest shopping mall, almost 6 million square feet. All of that pales in comparison to our subject next week, though. because We're going to be talking about the entire universe. While the spatial size of the universe is unknown, it is possible to measure the size of the observable universe, observable, uh, which is approximately 93 billion light years at the present day. To put that into comparison, to get to the sun, our nearest star, depending on your preferred method of transport, it would take you 19 years. If you were on a plane traveling at 555 uh, miles per hour or 177 years driving at 60 miles per hour (laughs) or 3,536 years to walk there, (laughs) three miles an hour, uh, the universe is fucking enormous and terrifying. When a galaxy explodes, great way to start this uh, list, uh, releases a massive burst of gamma rays powerful enough to completely annihilate any planetary bodies in its path. Even scarier, 150 to 250 million light years from our galaxy lies a dreaded space anomaly called the Great Attractor. With a gravitational pull so powerful, it can pull entire galaxies towards itself and collapse them into one another. Scarier still is that we don't know what that thing is. There's not even enough mass around it to account for that gravitational pull. While the Great Attractor is at a large distance from us, its intense gravitational pull makes it very likely we're on an inevitable crash course with it. Might not happen for a few billion years. Uh, but still haunting. But there's nothing that's captured the cultural imagination with space, probably uh, like black holes. Objects with gravity so strong, nothing, not even light can escape. That's hard to wrap my head around. Uh, all of that and more on next week's cosmological come aboard our spaceship black hole episode of Time Suck. Right now, we're going to head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. First up, uh, we have Marvelous Meat Sack Jessica. I'll leave her last name out in case her ex hears this. Uh, Jessica reminded me how powerful it is just not to feel alone. When she wrote in, I'm not sure if anyone will read this, but I wanted you to send my story of listening to the show. I don't know how I came across Time Suck, but my mind was blown and there was this guy, as curious as I am, has almost my exact views on just about every topic he brings up, and this guy's funny. I was then blown away that there were so many of us just like you. I think I've been listening to you for about three years now. I was working in Dallas at a corporate bank and had a wife. I would save your podcast so I could listen to them while I drove to my hometown to see the family. You've got me through many a long night on the road, my friend. Snap to now, I'm living in my hometown. I am a special education teacher in a neighboring tiny farm and ranch community. Teacher pay has gone up in many places, but not in the small rural schools we are so desperately trying to save. So I went from living in Dallas with a shitty wife, excuse me, plenty of money, uh, to my hometown where I am passionate about teaching, but poor as a church mouse. And maybe, I mean, wife is what you wrote, but maybe it was a typo with shitty life. Could be shitty life, could be shitty wife. Um, could be both. The town is population 150 that I teach at. So my car is broken down. I have school bills from obtaining a teacher's degree that I cannot pay. My first degree was a business degree. I can't afford internet, but I can stream Time Suck on my phone. Hail Nimrod. So, Mr. Dan Cummins, you are my entertainment slash teacher. I don't want to listen to any other podcasts, so I haven't. I come home to my ragtag, get charming duplex, and listen to you. 
Uh, every night, if I don't have overwhelming debt from getting a teacher's degree, my life would be pretty damn perfect. My Dallas life can't hold a flame to teaching at a struggling school and listening to you at night in my charming duplex. Thank you. Thank you for always being just a few taps away. I thank all the crew and Lindsay as well. You have built a cult that truly helps get me through life, Jessica. Well, Jessica, I am so honored to be a, a part of your life and to have the online community around this podcast become you know, part of your life as well. Internally, um, you know, I, I definitely struggle with um, feeling alone or have historically, right? Kind of like, uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know why I like hem around it. I'm sure like depression. I, I think I've, you know, have my whole life. I always thought it was just my temperament for a long time, right? That my brain would just loop through a little stormy place if nothing fucking matters. Life is just a big fucking game. And I'm not sure how much longer I even want to play from time to time. And I thought that was just like the way that everyone internally dealt with life. <laughs> now I'm not so sure. Uh, one of the things that would put me in that place or still does, I guess, would just be feeling misunderstood. Feeling like, fuck, man, no one understands what I'm trying to say. You know, I'm constantly misunderstood. No one understands what I'm, what I'm feeling in my head. And, you know, I never really talked about that stuff to anyone until recently. But hearing all these messages for years from people like you now, I know that I'm, you know, finally starting to truly understand just how important community is. How important it is to talk to or just even to listen to someone who seems to understand you. And if that person is understood by a lot of other people, then you can think, right? Then I am understood by a lot of other people too. There are a lot of us who feel like square pegs, constantly trying to be crammed into a round hole. So, you know, I don't know, maybe most people feel that way. If not, at least a lot of us do. And there is so much comfort in that. And I am so thankful that there is a community around this that, you know, you can pop in and say hi to people. Uh, also, it sounds like you are following your passion, doing something for the love of doing it instead of just for the money. And I hope that fills you with feelings of purpose and fulfillment, uh, you know, that make you just feel great about your choice. And I hope I can continue to be some, you know, similarly, similarly, my mouth is out of control today, a weird stranger who, who gives a voice to at least some of your thoughts. And, and finally, thank you for teaching and for helping one of the most vulnerable populations in the world find as much autonomy and self-worth as they can in this fucking insane rock we live on. Uh, you're a saint, Jessica. Uh, thank you for slumming it with us sinners. And next up, another awesome sack, Olivia Turner, knows someone who could use some encouragement and love. She's a good egg too, like Jessica, and just wants me to say something quick. Alex in Wisconsin, your friends and family back in Tennessee and your girlfriend love you. Your time suck family, Jim, Amber, Sam, and Olivia are here for you. All hail, overlord bezos well i don't know exactly what that inside joke is alex but i think i would love it now go get your dick sucked get out in nature enjoy being alive and here with the rest of us and keep your eye out for creepy dudes like david carpenter hiding in the bushes and be thankful that you have you know cool people like uh olivia turner looking out for you uh marvelous meat sack another one mylene parks has a brother who is not a total piece of shit and she wants this audience to know that she writes Hey, Suckmaster and Mistress of the Spoopy. I'm a new listener to Time Suck and Scared to Death. Love both so much. 3.5 out of 5 stars. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, well, Lindsay's not here in this moment, but she forwarded this message to me. She says, thank you. And then she writes, I was hoping that you could do a shout out for my brother, Ammon Parks. He showed me the podcast a couple months ago. Is a Patreon supporter. Listens to you uh, all day as a trade worker. He's the best big brother a girl could ask for. And I want his birthday on September 22nd to reflect that. I'm sorry for the long message, but if you do manage to get him a shout out, could you tell him that his favorite little sister, ha, oh, so cute, says happy birthday, booger. <laughs> Thank you. Stay sucky and spooky forever. Your loyal cult devotee, Mylene Parks. Well, Mylene, I like your name, by the way. I'm not, I don't know that I've heard that one before. Very nice. Uh, first off, your message, not even 
close to being too long. Uh, also, Ammon Parks, happy birthday, you beautiful bastard. I hope Lucifina entrances you, gives you all the pleasure your heart desires. Also, I hope you have a, I don't know, a tasty donut. I don't even know if you fucking like donuts, but, <laughs> but I'm guessing you do because they are delicious. Uh, one of my favorite treats, especially maple bars. I hope you have a maple bar so good that if I were to find out about it, it would make me so jealous I would try and punch a fucking hole in the wall. Hail Nimrod to you both. And finally, one more from Gleeful Meat Sack Z. Z has some great ideas and shares them writing, Hey team, just wanted to see if, uh, and that was a lot of whys there. That was not me adding that. Hey team, uh, just wanted to see if we can do an informational shout out for new cult members. No doubt we'll get some newbies coming in because of our collective street team efforts. I hope so. Uh, To truly appreciate the community, we should point them to the cult pages on socials. Encourage them to post about where they found the sticker that was responsible for finding us. That is super cool. Yeah, please do that if you're hearing this and have done that. Uh, It would serve as validation to those who are participating as well as an invite into this beautiful community we have. I've made a few friends on the Facebook page that have truly become family in some ways and just think newcomers would appreciate that as well. Uh, Thank you so much for doing all that you do. Uh, and keeping all this going for us. We're all human and it cannot be easy work, but your passion truly shines through. Just know that you're helping us with your hard work. The community wouldn't be what it is if not for that. Thank you. Uh, Also, can I please give a shout out to Jeffrey Sanfilippo on our Facebook page. He's been very open with his health struggles with us and how hard it has been to keep his head up. That's what the community is for. To Jeffrey, keep fucking pushing, man. Nothing will change what's happening to you, but your outlook changes what goes on around you. Keep being the best father you can be. Keep making the best of every single day on this planet. Keep making memories for that little boy. The cult has your back when you need us. Uh, And then to all, make sure to tell everyone you love how much you love them as much as you can. The only guarantee we have in this life is that tomorrow is not promised. That all said, I love you all. Z. Well, Z, you are fucking adorable. Uh, Yes, that is so sweet. And yeah, Jeffrey, keep pushing. Uh, The world always has too many fuckheads in it. Like there's always a surplus of fuckheads and a shortage of fine folk. Uh, we need all the fine folk to stick around as long as possible to keep the ratio of fuckhead and fine folk from getting even more messed up. Also, regarding the communities, yes, there is the Time Suck Podcast Discord channel. There's the Time Suck subreddit. And there's so many private Facebook groups. Like, it's insane. I love it. You know, after getting shut down a few times, it all splintered. Uh, currently, uh, our main hub is Cult of the Curious 3 out of 5 stars. Uh, Seems to be very active, but a lot of others. There's the Cult of the Highly Curious, the Cult of the Blue Collar uh, Crew, um, Cult of the Recovering, Cult of the Curious Mental Health, Lucifina's Libations, Lucifina Bound, (laughs) Hail Lucifina Dating Group, and there's one called uh, Cult of the Subgroups that has a lot of links to an insane amount of other groups. Uh, I've been meaning to shift more focus to promoting these groups, and this was a great reminder to do so, Z. Yeah, so get in there if you're new, meet some people. And uh might be weird to say, but there's I know there's a lot of people in there who like they don't even like their life doesn't allow them or whatever, whatever reason they don't even listen to the podcast anymore, but they're still friends with a lot of other people in the group. So this is not even like a marketing ploy. Just get in there and uh yeah, make some friends. It's uh so many fucking great people. And hail Nimrod, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Uh, scared to death. Tech, oh my God. Scared to death. Time suck each week. Secret suck each week for space lizards. Uh, please do not head out on a hiking trail this week with a rape plan so you can focus your mind and help sell more fucking keychains and not stutter. 
uh, maybe go talk to a therapist, you know, instead, because if that's what's kind of going on with you, you're, you're super duper fucked up. And on the way to and from therapy, please keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Can we talk a little bit more about adult novelty keychains? Could you be friends with somebody whose keychain ornament was like a little dildo? Or like a like a clit vibrator or a picture of some naked lady? <laughs> some sexual situation? I mean, if they were doing it as a joke to get a rise out of me, yeah, sure, fine. You know, that's 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 funny. I like some shock humor. But if that's just how they live their life. I don't think I could. It's too much, right? At least keep your sex toys in your pocket or your purse so I'm not distracted while talking to you thinking, who is that fucking horny? Who who needs that easy of access to that? It's a bit much. Can we please agree that it's a bit much? And if you want to, (laughs) maybe go to the comment section of my special trying to get better and leave a lot of comments about adult keychains and what kinds you would like to have because that'd be pretty funny. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 